Hey everybody, welcome to the Field Cross Rebel Podcast. It's me, George, and I have Raul Martinez here with me in the studio. Good day, good day. Hey, what's up, Raul? How, how have you been? Pretty good, man. Trying to lose a little bit of weight, um, getting ready for this fight April 4th. We got five dudes on the team, and man, just... And every one of them are fighting? Yeah, we Damn. have five dudes fighting, man. I can't wait. That's going to be exciting. You remember the last, last fight? Time? Oh, yeah. The last fight was so fun. <laughs> it was so good. It was just cool being part of like the whole like behind the scenes, you know, like yeah. the warm up and the fighters get together, the briefing and yeah. you're in the, the, uh, the locker room and like each team, like you got like red corner and blue corner. And then I remember coming back and it was like red corner one, everyone was like pumped up. And then we had like a streak going on and then yeah. blue corner one. It was like, Oh, and it was just a cool, <laughs> it was cool. You know, for sure. Yeah. It's a, it was a, a great experience seeing all that kind of, from behind the scenes, uh, you know, because everybody watches it on TV, but like, yep. to be back there. And oh, yeah. That, that was super cool. We got some training courses coming up. We sure do. So let's talk about February uh, because we're, we're already in Feb and things are yep. already rolling along. So the 7th and the 7, 8, 9, we have uh, the soft prep, which is pretty maxed already, I'm sure. Yeah, right? I yeah. think I only have maybe like... One or two slots. Yeah, yeah. it's filled up fast. So that's a really good course for guys that are getting ready to try out for SF or uh, in any branch, right? So yeah. any SF unit anywhere. It's a. It's Mike likes to say it's it's about sixty to seventy percent academic, thirty to forty percent physical. Yeah. So you're doing a lot of learning. You're doing a lot of mental mapping and training. And then some physical activity, some self-defense stuff, because, I mean, the nature of the game, you're going to fight. So oh yeah, you've seen it. You've been to them. Yep. We, we hold Oh, yeah. We go over everything that you need to know. Anybody interested in going to any kind of selection or even going to the military, just going to kind of get like a little, just a glimpse of what you would to expect or what you're going to expect when you go to these selection processes and like the mindset and you know, the physical training that you're going to get here is only a slice of it. So it just gives you that kind of like, okay, I need to either tighten my shot group up or I'm good to go where I'm at. Yeah, it helps the baseline for sure. Uh, from there, 15th and 16th of February, we're in series again. Like series is one of our great hometown ranges. Mike was awesome to establish that relationship and we're there. Uh, it's a great range. Uh, mm -hmm. The layout is good. Uh, the The way it's laid out as a... Uh, soccer slash football field so it's got um all the lines the turf, on it yeah, and everything's painted so it's a really great training range so the 15th will be pistol the 16th of feb will be carbine i'll be out there with some of the guys that we're bringing on board to help teach or ai for us andrew and jimmy so be there the 22nd and the 23rd we're in kansas city missouri where we're doing a low profile carbine on sunday and a conceal carry style class on uh, the Saturday before that. So the 22-23 of February, Kansas City. 29th and then the 1st of March, we're in Paris. So Southern California folks, we're doing another conceal carry uh, style training for pistol and then a low profile carbine. We get a lot of questions about low profile carbine. Have you notice that? Mm -hmm. And it's the description is in the, in the class description. It really is uh, getting you comfortable with not having so much stuff, um, still giving you the confidence with just the rifle, maybe no sling, maybe one magazine, maybe everything has to be done um, from a smaller position where it's it's more concealed and you're deploying just with a carbine, so no additional stuff. Really, it's uh, it's really to hone in your skills with just the carbine. March, man, we're so stacked with classes. It's so great. March 7th and 8th, we are in Las Vegas, Pro Gun Club. Great facility, and for that one, Joel and myself will be there. 
The 14th, we have Go Rigs. What's where's that at? That's going to be at uh, Adventure Trailers in Prescott. It's uh, the uh, website or on the website. The address is on the website as well. It's in, it's off of Sixth Street in Prescott, uh, but we were doing it there, and we're gonna have um, I'm gonna have Max Tracks there, and I'm trying to get uh, Summit Four by Four there as well, and then Overland Journal. So, yeah, it's our uh, Go Reason Coffee Survival Seminar April Fourteenth from nine to twelve. Yep, that's uh, fourteen March, and. So piggybacking off of that and hopefully drawing in a crowd for the 15th of March, we have our Street Ready Combatives program. Uh, Our SIM guns are going to be in. The protective equipment is in. We'll have new instructors that you guys will get to meet if you're at that course. A lot of fighting, a lot of training, and a lot of shooting at each other with SIMs. So get ready for a great class. And then that class is going to go on the road. 25, 26, 27, 28, super stacked four-day in New Jersey. Mike and Kevin are going to be out doing great stuff with uh, the PDs out there and then some open enrollments. So if you're on the East Coast, check that out. Back here at home, the 28th, in, or not home as, as far as that goes, but home as in closer to Arizona. <laughs> uh, 28 and 29, Dallas-Fort Worth. We're there again, Triple C range, great host, great, great, great people there. Uh, we're doing pistol, uh, the 28th. And then that same night we're doing low light, no light, and then carbine on the next day. We might even add a combatives class to that. I don't know. I think there's still time, but we'll see that same weekend. So this is a triple stack weekend, which is now new and going to become customary for the company where we're doing instructors on each end of, of the, uh, of the continent or yeah, continent, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Mike and Kevin, two instructors for Fieldcraft, are on the East Coast. And then on the West Coast, we have Ceres. And then kind of center line, we have myself going to Texas. So we're touching three states at once, which is really cool for, for the growth of the company. And, yeah, hope to see you at one of these training. That's our schedule for February and March. Go on the website, Fieldcraft Survival Training, and you'll see how much more stuff we have. We have Cincinnati, Chicago, uh, a bunch of other places, Arkansas, Washington, just yeah if you're looking for a course we're trying to come to everybody's location we travel there so i'm sure you guys can travel there uh anything within a 10-hour drive no excuse awesome great uh layout for those that training dates for all because a lot of, i get a lot of questions about training dates and i try to <laughs> push everybody to the website but yeah. this is good just to have it on uh, for the podcast uh also we're sponsored here so our first sponsor is uh Killcliff. you can find them at killcliff.com um i've been using Killcliff since we've been probably for almost about six months now. And, uh, you know, I train with Raul every morning and I do the, I, I named it the Killcliff challenge I like myself. That, that was a good one. I, yeah. I totally thought it was like a real thing and now it's a real thing. But when you brought yeah. it up, I was like, Oh damn. So I basically, you know, Killcliff has their great energy drinks. They're natural. They don't have a bunch of that junk garbage in there. So they have a ignite, which is kind of like their, pre-workout drink has about 150 uh, milligrams of uh, caffeine so it kind of gets you going there and then i drink that i pound one of those before i'd start working out and then during uh the workouts they have another uh, drink called endure it's kind of you know it, it keeps you going it has a good blend of the right carbs just to keep you going throughout your workout and then obviously at the end depending on how hard the workout is i either have a recovery just a regular recover or i do this they have the new cbd recovers Mm. Yeah, tell me about what, what's your favorite flavor now that we've got all the flavors of the CBD drinks in. So I, I put up a post uh, <laughs> of the grape drink one, and they Killcliff responded like with, uh-huh. with a, a like a happy face because I called it grape drink. But th- <laughs> that grape one is probably my favorite. 
uh, out of all of them, but the tropical one, the, uh, the mango, yeah, the peach mango blend, yeah, it's a good one. It's delicious. As well, yeah, it's super tropical, really great um, yeah. post training, especially. So I like that one. My favorite, yeah. Right now, mine's like the grape because it tastes like yeah. a, like an old school grape well, we, soda. We drank the yeah. exactly. <laughs> we drank the uh, the orange crush so much, yeah, that we were so excited to get the new. Flavors. Oh yeah, yeah. But we have a, 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 a excuse me a coupon code for Killcliff. It's Survival One Zero. If you use Survival One Zero at checkout, you'll save ten percent. Nice. Our next uh, sponsor is Triarch systems you can find them at triarchsystems.com uh we've been running their guns for probably the last half of the year probably yeah. eight, eight, eight to nine or eight to nine months i think maybe yeah you have their uh their 10.5 i do with it's, the law folder mm-hmm. tell us some tell us a little bit about that man it's just it's a good little gun and everybody always wants to see it and shoot it and kind of get a vibe for it when when we're at classes so i let anybody shoot it who, who wants to shoot it so just if we're in a course together and you want to check it out, just grab it. Um, what I've been seeing in courses, which is really cool about having that product there, is it's a full build, right? It comes mm-hmm. to you fully built. Everything's yep. ready to go out of the box. So you know that somebody at the shop put it together and it's all set up for you to go. Instead of uh, what we see a lot are guys who build their own guns and they tend to fail because mm-hmm. they put in this piece and that piece. We had a class not too long ago where both of the pins for the trigger group were gone. Damn. I was like, dude, that just happened from shooting. Yeah. Uh, so good, reliable equipment, and that's kind of what I see in Triarch. I'm not a gun guy in the sense that I buy a ton of stuff like guns. I like to train, and I spend more money on bullets than I do on equipment. So I have maybe three guns that I own, and then the company issued stuff, which I'm super excited that we partnered with Triarch and started running their guns because now I have something that I, I'm fully behind and i can tell people hey this is the gun you want yeah if you're in in looking for a custom made rifle and or custom glocks and they have a tri 11 which is a uh awesome handgun it just looks good i haven't got to shoot it yet but we have one at the shop and i'm I'm pretty excited to run that for a little bit but uh if you're interested in getting a a rifle or a glock or a tri 11 check out triarchsystems.com and we have a coupon code for them and it's fieldcraft one word fieldcraft and it saves you five percent off your builds nice uh, our next uh sponsor is casey highlights casey highlights what what more can i say say about them they've been in uh, business for 50 years this, they're celebrating their 50th anniversary this year and we're so happy that we've been able to partner with them uh they respond they you know they sponsored us here on the podcast we're going to do a lot more events with them we're going to get a lot more of their uh, lights on our rigs so check them out at kill or <laughs> at caseyhighlights.com <laughs> We have a coupon code for them, and it's Fieldcraft. One word saves you ten percent. Just a shout out to those guys at Casey Highlights. Um, we're looking forward to uh, just working with you guys more of these events, and then just getting that getting that you know Fieldcraft and Casey Highlights together. I can't wait to see that. Yeah, that's gonna be cool. I'm excited to get some lights on my car. Yeah, I am. I'm gonna get because I have a well, I have my I have a 1997 Land Cruiser. I have zero. I mean, I basically did <laughs> suspension, tires, wheels. I haven't done anything with lights yet. You and it's I just, both, we have older vehicles that are yeah. like set up. They're yeah. designed easy. for upgrades and yeah. we're just, yeah, we're slacking. <laughs> so, I mean, my whole, I'm going to get, I'm going to get that whole retro look with the Casey, the, the circle lights on yeah. there and then maybe like a nice little light bar on the, on the, on yeah, the bumper the or something. Bottom. Just to like, you know, just yeah. give a little, little zest. That'd be cool, man. Yeah. Our last sponsor here is a uh, BCM Bravo company manufacturing. 
Uh, Mike is a sponsored gunfighter for them. I have one of their carbines, um, and I know Raul has one of their carbines as well. So, uh, like I said, I kind of switch off and on between my Triarch and my BCM. It's kind of hard to pick just one, but uh, I have a 10.5 BCM with a Vortex Razor HD uh, optic on it, and like. How I many? I mean, how many rounds have we run through our BCMs? <laughs> Every one of them. Uh, I think we get yelled at here and there for for how much ammo, company ammo we <laughs> shoot. <laughs> so I mean, we burn it down, and I try not to clean the guns just to see where their fail points are. And I talk about it in classes. Like people will see my bolt and bolt carrier group is just like a mess, and the chamber. Uh, but who cares? It's about seeing where these things fail, and they haven't yet, which is impressive. Yeah. You know. Uh, I'm going to say a rough number, maybe 7K. Yeah, I think I'm right below that. I'm like yeah. four to five. I don't so, get that much trigger time on the will. range. But you when I do, it's it's fun. But, uh, yeah, just a shout-out to uh, BCM. Great, great products. Working with them is great. And they're, they're obviously, they're, you know, they're, Mike's a sponsored gunfighter for them. So shout-out to BCM. Um, and then so today's guest, we have – Lieutenant John Norris Jr., retired uh, State of California Department of Fish and Wildlife. He has a book called Hidden War, How Special Operations Game Wardens Are Reclaiming America's Wildlands from the Drug Cartels. So basically, he was on a marijuana enforcement team going into the uh, wherever in California these cartels were working. Of what, do you have the – I forget where he was exactly – I don't. I'm. I'm just finishing up. We two just got other a books. copy of the book, yeah. so we're just trying to co- uh, finish up. But great podcast, all awesome guy. I mean, I tell you what, he was the nicest dude we've had in the building. Nicest guy, yeah. nicer than me. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. And I like to say I'm a pretty nice guy. You are, but, yeah. You're a good, uh, nice guy. Yeah. Enjoyed this podcast, Lieutenant John Norris Jr. Uh, what more can I say? Great story. Uh, enjoy the show. John, thank you for coming on the podcast, man. Man, Mike, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Man, you you just came in, you flew in from California, right? Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. So you're working out of California, and now you're officially retired. You've been retired almost a year now? About a year, year and a month. Yeah, it was December of 2018. And so then, uh, how has retirement life been? So far, because it's been hectic, man. I've seen you all over social media, it, all over the place. It's it's been awesome. It's been different, yeah. and I'm sure as you can relate, when you know leaving 28 years of being a law enforcement officer, a game warden, and then 15 of that in special operations, running with a high speed, low drag team, I was afraid of hitting that wall and what was going to happen next. You know, and very fortunately for me, with the new book and with the message that's so nationally important on a bunch of different levels. It's been like I, I really didn't leave work. I just kind of changed, you know, what my role is in phase two. And that's really to send a message and educate and teach and not be operational anymore. So, man, I never even thought about it that way. The transitional stuff we, we commonly talk about on the podcast with military people, right? But it is common in the first responder world of having transitional yes. issues from going a hundred miles an hour in what you do. Yeah. And then you're in phase two and you have to figure it out. Have you had any difficulties with? Um, picking up the the pieces and starting over again? A little bit, a little bit. Like uh, I've been really lucky since the book's been so successful and and I've been so busy around that. And stuff that was kind of developing, you know, the last 10, 15 years of my career was outreach was, excuse me, one of my fortes. It was one of my, you know, roles I was assigned in the new team was to educate as well as run the team and, and, and operational missions and, you know, training and development and all of that. But I kind of hit that wall for a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. you know, because there was kind of a, you know, a backlash before things really got, you know, ripping. 
And one thing that was so weird, and this was almost like indoctrinated behavior and, you know, psychologically, you don't even know it, but for 28 years, I had two trucks, a patrol truck, a government ride, you know, it was all pimped out for off-road that I took home. Free gas. Free gas, (laughs) which, which was cool. Yeah. But you know, we take our trucks home, we work out of our houses. We don't go to a district field office as game. Your base station for Camo, you check in, everything is from the house, right? Yeah. We check in from the house. I mean, we have a dispatch center and we have regional offices all over the state of California, but the truck goes home, you have your computer, your internet, your phone. So you're accessible to your district quickly mm-hmm. and you're embedded and living somewhere within your you know patrol area of operation but i had two trucks i had two cell phones private and my government cell phone mm-hmm. and then i had two computers and i turned all that in you know had the last camp out with the snipers and the met team we'd had a big send off it was emotional it was epic you know next phase and i'm driving away in my personal truck with one phone and i'm like I feel freaking <laughs> naked and no joke, Mike. Wow. I woke up in the middle of the night. I still do. Even a year later, looking for your phone, like, like this panic. I'll yeah. have dreams that I've left equipment behind or, you know, my thing was always be on time, be early, you know, yeah. um, running the team. So there's always that. Sometimes I get those dreams where I'm, I'm missing streets and I'm running through an alley and I'm not getting where I need to get on time. and about to miss an operation or something critical. Yeah. And then I can't find my shit. Wow. <laughs> and so, I mean, that literally happened like two nights ago. And I went to grab for two phones. What happened to that second phone? Where's what did I miss? There and is so, no second phone. There was no second phone. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of a semi free agent now, but it wow. doesn't. You know, I still feel very. You know, just you just it's part of me. You know, yeah, just you like can, you would. You know, with your SF career, man, you, it's you hard. can't do anything for 28 years and no. not have. And it, no. a lot of people, I I love it because in the military, when when you get out and people. I hear the stories of you being in the military, they immediately associate trauma, but it's just patterns. Right. I mean, it's like you're, yeah. you're, yeah. when you're working a specific kind of pattern and then you, you're brought out of that or pulled out of that pattern and then you're a free agent, kind of just doing your own thing. It's weird, man. It's weird at, at first. It is. It is. And it's, uh, and, and it, it's got some of my teammates, you know, SEAL team veterans that were now game wardens on the unit and, you know, guys from domestic law enforcement, special ops and stuff. But some of my closest friends that we'd spent 25 years together, you know, in the patrol phase of our job before we got the special ops team built about 10 to 14 days into retirement. I'm still keeping in touch with these are my brothers, but I finally start getting those calls like, Hey, how you doing? I'm fine. Why? What's going on? How's the team? Just checking on you. You know, just because yeah. oh, they know. You oh, know? yeah. I mean, I'm a rat. I was a rat on crack as a team leader. And yeah. Just happy and blessed to be doing what I was doing my whole yeah. career. Like you, you know, yeah. I track your amazing career on uh, Mike Ritland's oh, Mike Drop podcast. That was a good podcast. Mike's was, such a good Oh, dude. man. I love Mike. You guys yeah. went so far down the rabbit hole, <laughs> and I did. thought, I can't wait to talk to Mike Squared here <laughs> because crazy. seeing what your career was all yeah. about, I my same question to you was, how was that transition? You got into it on Mike's a little bit, but yeah. it was tough. Super you know? difficult. Yeah. And people don't. I mean, especially with these career fields and, and, you know, we'll get into it in, uh, here in a second, but you know, you were like a green beret for the, the warden side, right. For the fish and wildlife side where, you know, you're operating in a very semi to non-permissive environment where right. things could go bad really quick. So <clears throat> the elevated status of how you operate, where you have to remain vigilant and on point all the time yes can exhaust you. And, and yeah. when you're doing it, for, especially for operationally, when you're doing it for so long, you get into a rhythm where it's supposed to be red, amber, green, right? You're supposed right. to have a down cycle, but you right. never really do have you a do. down cycle. You you're don't. always in it. Um, even when you're not in it, you're thinking about it. So it's almost yeah. like you're emotionally there at least. And then just to step away from it completely. I wanted to ask you, because um, I, I wanted, how was the community treated you 
ever since the release of the book because you know this is to me this is a completely different and so justified means of media and conversation because it's ever on everybody's mind now and to hear the truth yeah. in the context of somebody who's experienced it for 28 years uh, needs to be told but how has it how has the community received it you know it's been amazing the community on all levels have really received the message well and you know like i talked about on joe rogan show especially um, obviously I'm going to relate to guys like you guys that have a special forces background, military or law enforcement that regimented, regimented, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, whatever we did. And always for the mission to protect this country, external and internal issues. And for me, environmental stuff, but, um, with Joe and with some others like it, you know, you don't have that military background, but you have more of a, you know, a wider reach with some of the left yeah. versus some of the right, yep. you know, and um, like you've said on your podcast and like what I like about Joe and how I feel personally is I'm an issue by issue guy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this before the show. I hate the divisiveness we have going on with the left and the right. So toxic, I certainly yeah. lean a little right, you know, given yeah. my background, but I stay relatively open-minded because we are a people and we need to stay unified as a people because there are internal and external threats. And I've dealt with so many internal threats to our environment, our public safety, and really just eroding, you know, the public health of our country that we, we can't be looking both sides. You know, we got to be unified a little bit. So we've had very positive response from anybody that I've talked to this about, whether it be a podcast format, I speak all over the country on it, and not just the law enforcement or military groups, but animal rights groups, cannabis, you know, activist groups, mm. um, you name it, legislatures, um, high school kids, yeah. you know, all over the board. And, and, you know, when we developed the marijuana enforcement team, our specialized unit, as the team leader developing it, and as a, you know, the lieutenant, 30% of my job, besides operational stuff, was to do outreach, mm -hmm. education. And, you know, that, that was a lot of years of doing that. And I'm real passionate about it. I still enjoy talking about it. And, you know, sometimes, I, you know, you think, would, would you get tired of telling the same story or updated versions of the same story? And, and I can honestly say no. It's really important and people respond well because it doesn't matter where we sit on the political spectrum. Rather, we've been, you know, operational and law enforcement first responder or military veteran. Everybody resonates with this message because it's pro-American. It's pro. It, it's a humanitarian message overall. You know? Yeah, it's and it's a story of truth. It's not like there's an agenda, a no, hidden agenda. No, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's leaning one way or the other. Exactly. Let, let's get into the beginning of the story because I kind of want to hear. I'm really interested to hear your background and what made you out of high school and you went to college as yeah. well. Yep. Um, wanted to be a game warden in the state of California. Like where did, where did that venture or that bug begin? It was an interesting development be, um, that didn't come naturally. There was a little bit of intervention. I'll get to that in a minute on how the story goes. But um, when I was growing up, I was going to follow in my uncle's footsteps and be a civil engineer. I like to draft, I like to design, I like to be in the outdoors, and I thought dams, hydrology, things like that. The other thing is m myself and my three siblings kind of, uh, my mom called us and dad called us their wolf pack. You know, we were outdoor kids and we grew up without a lot of resources. There were a lot of poor hard years there. And I was first to go to college in the family. And my thing was, I need to make a decent enough living and a successful career that I can pay it back to the family, you know, mm -hmm. pay it forward and not be without. Cause we, we had a lot of years of going without, there were some tough times, but tough times make us tougher, you know? Yeah. And I'm really, I wouldn't change that given what has happened. Um, so I never even met a game warden. I got my hunting license and passed hunter education at nine years old with my dad's help. And, you know, he was a tr uh, champion trap and skeet shooter, 
back up on the Olympic team, um, a state champion in California back at the time, nice. just a, an innately amazing shooter. It ran in my family on the Norris side, granddad, career Navy, dad, army, the national guard, then, you know, competitive shooter. So we grew up with that. We grew up, you know, shooting 22s and air guns early on. Um, I got the hunter safety. I was loving it. I just loved being in the outdoors, mm. love sunrises on a duck hunt, started a deer hunt, you know, when I was of age to do that. And I was blown away by the freedom and the energy and just the beauty of everything going on out there. Yeah. And, um, you know, to quote, and this my, is NorCal. This is all NorCal at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And what people don't realize I'm originally from the Silicon Valley of California and you think, oh my gosh, you know, the tech capital of the world, it's just mm -hmm. like LA, it's just hustle and bustle. The politics are crazy. But like we talked about before the show and you get 10 to 15 miles east or west of the valley. Yeah. And there are some of the most beautiful, remote, unhiked trails mm -hmm. right now that are still <laughs> hunted, you know, um, you know, legally under conservation models on private land. There's all this open space. And I still go back to California and being a Montana resident now with my non-resident tags and licenses and go have the as good a time as I do in Montana or anywhere else. Yep. It's still there. And that was the input. So I'm tracking along to be an engineer. I'm grinding away at high school. I'm working a couple of jobs. I'm in the outdoors all the time. I'm, you know, backpacking, you know, dumb kids learning to survive off grid with bad equipment, you know, all that kind of good stuff. Like <laughs> the, we good all did. Times, the good times, the good times. And, uh, I'm, um, about a semester into the engineering program at San Jose state and it's a winter break. We were on the semester system. So we have this five week winter break and my ex-brother-in-law called my brother outlaw. I've known him since second grade. He's my Baja racing partner um, on dirt bikes and quads and stuff. And just been buddies and family forever. He's got a pack horse and we're backpacking in Henry Co. Park for our winter break. So I leave finals and I don't go party for the, you know, four weeks. I go straight to the mountains with my buddy. And we're going to go on like this 90 mile round trip hike after a seven day window, dead of winter. No one's in the park. Hmm. My kind of adventure, right? Yeah. Your kind of adventure. Oh, yeah. Just awesome. And, um, all those years hunting, I had never met a game warden. They'd never checked me in a camp. They'd never checked me and my dad or anyone else I was with, even fishing, loved to angle, trout fishing and stuff. So I didn't even know the job existed. So I'm going along this career path and not really feeling it, to be honest. And we're 13 miles into the backcountry after hiking all night to find this lake we've never been to in a downpour. We're soaking wet. We've got old, un, you know, not very breathable equipment. And we have an illegal fire to start drying stuff out the next day. And early the next morning, I hear the compound low transfer case of this four by four truck just winding down this mountain to get to us. And wow, what's that? Rangers come here, you know, back here this far. Cause we're in the, we're back, we're, we're in deep. And it was a game warden and he's patrolling that back country area because that's when the black tailed deer hunting season is over, mm -hmm. but all the trophy bucks are in this area and guys will go in and maybe poach them and take them out of season, you know, for that big trophy rack. And uh, they thought we were probably a poaching camp. We we're just dumb kids hiking. Yeah. And so he finds out we're, you know, innocent, but stupid. Yeah. And uh, I go, what, what, what do you do? And I, I kept him there for two hours and I'm asking him all these questions and he's like, oh yeah, you know, we're wildlife off. We're basically, we're law enforcement. We're have jurisdiction everywhere to do everything cops do. But our emphasis is protecting wildlife, enforcing these laws. I'm like, where's your backup? He goes, well, there, there is no backup. I'm wow. by myself. It's all what I can, you know, I'm going to think myself through. I have an array of weaponry. I'm equipped to live out of this truck for five days. If I get stuck on a case or a breakdown or whatever, and you're your own backup most of the time. And I went, wow, I lost it, man. I was just wound up for four days. And <laughs> How just, exciting. Oh yeah. And my brother, uh, Jeff was just like, oh, I can see your wheels turning. This is going to be an interesting trip. So the second we got out of the woods, I went 
to the criminal justice department, a different division at San Jose State. And unbeknownst to me, it was one of the best criminal justice uh, schools in America. Oh, wow. Lucky me. And I said, what do I got to do to be a game warden? Do I need a degree to be a cop? What, what's it going to take? And they go, oh yeah, we place game wardens, FBI, guys go to the military. We have an ROTC you know, program, all of it. I changed my major that day. Wow. So I was only in the engineering school for six months. And yeah. then come spring of that first semester, this would, would have been 86, 87. I was off to the races to get a degree and be a game warden. And I, you know, four years later, not too long out of uh, between my undergrad and graduate work um, at state, I got the call and it was just to the races. Wow. And, and you, as a game warden, you're a federal law enforcement agent and you have to go to F Fletsy or is that? It's a little different. Mm -hmm. So Mike, it, to be a game warden in California, we're directly under the department, uh, under the interior resources. Mm. So we work directly for the governor's office at the state level. So we go to a state police academy somewhere in California, okay. but we are federally deputized as well to enforce federal regulations and Lacey Act inter interstate violations with like U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, mm. um, work with Forest Service a lot, BLM, any of the national groups as well. But at the time, we had our own Fish and Wildlife Academy um, for game wardens at Napa Valley College right next to their police academy. Yeah. But it was one of the first true game warden specific academies where they weren't throwing game warden candidates in with regular police academies. Mm. So that was cool. And I was from resources. So it's completely separate. It's completely separate, but you cover all the same stuff. Yeah. And what people don't realize is the training required for a game warden beyond what a, a standard law enforcement officer has to take is a little more arduous because we're sworn peace officers for everything in California, everything that highway patrol, your state troopers here in Arizona, um, police department, sheriffs, we have to do all of that training, pass all of that. And then now we're up to about eight or nine weeks of fish and game specific advanced training before we go to our districts and start a field training officer program and go oh, through wow. that. So, and that's all wildlife forensics, skinning, gutting, tracking. Um, I got roped into teaching a field craft school, basically a, um, we call it a covert surveillance or a code five school wow. where I took my time as a game warden and then the time as a sniper and later a sniper instructor. And we teach these newer generation kids being game wardens how to camo up, how to build ghillie suits, how to crawl what? into how to, how to crawl into position and make observations. Yeah. Um, we do a classroom on it. And then we do a scenario where, just like from sniper school, I'm sure you'll relate yeah. to this, me and a partner, Marcos, as he's identified in the book, we'll let him go out in a big wooded field as part of um, Butte College, where our academy is now. It's an amazing class. And they'll have a couple hours to set up in teams. And then we'll go out a couple hours later, we'll set up the big optics yeah. and we'll pick apart their hides and see if we find any of them. And we'll do certain overt acts, you know, that they got to document and they got to go through it. Then we'll debrief each team. And I got to admit, man, those kids are good quick. Really? Even, even the younger generation, millennial ex-generationers that haven't had a lot of outdoor experience, just because they get, have so much fun doing it. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're rough around the edges like any field craft school when you start. Yeah. But we usually would only catch, we might have seven, eight teams out there you know, five, six to a group yeah. and they're no more than 200 yards out, mm -hmm. 150 yards, sometimes closer. And they've just blended their layer of, of vegetation. They've arranged their camo, right? They've made the sun levels where they need to be. And we might catch one or two most classes. Wow. So I was, I was really impressed to see the next generation doing a good job. And then we, uh, then the next morning we go out there and do a big poaching scenario and they got to take us down and undetected. And wow. it's a fun little evolution, you know? So that is that, that's the basic training. That's basic. Wow. Yeah. So you guys, you know, on top of all the other uh, duties that you have to do as a sworn peace officer, you have to do the extra stuff of Phil Craft and everything else because you your do. job 
specifically is operating in remote austere places where nobody else is right um how many sworn because the name has changed right it used to be wild or it used to be fishing game yep and now it's what wildlife fish and wildlife fish and wildlife california department of fish and wildlife yep previously california department of fish and game and the the game part of the title was kind of misnomer with some of the politics and changing sentiment in California for yeah. a multitude of reasons. It went to wildlife, but game comes from the hunting side of it. Yep. Legal ethical conservation that we in the agency support. We mm-hmm. all come from that background, and we want to see it thrive. Yeah. And in California, we are losing hunters, you know, annually. Mm-hmm. It's just happening, um, unfortunately. But fortunately, the title of the position is still game warden. And I, I just, uh, I prefer it. I like it. And that's yeah. the dinosaur in me, yeah. you know, but um, the other term we have is wildlife officer, which is the other title of what our job is. And, you know, you see game wardens call it conservation officers, wildlife officers, game wardens, a lot of different combinations, but I, I go kind of old school and we call it game warden. So what's, what's the, where does the ranger fit into the, the picture? Like if you have a ranger that's in rolling around, is he dedicated to BLM or national forest? Uh, it, it kind of, it kind of depends. Um, a ranger for say us forest service is responsible for his entire forest and any, any national forest, yeah. federal land, public land, but he's enforcing not just wildlife violations. He's doing everything. Uh, Illegal campfires, you know, felons with weapons on the property, yeah. um, timber harvest issues, trespassing issues, border disputes, uh, cattle grazing violations, or, you know, uh, making sure things like that are going smoothly. So a, a ranger has a lot of challenges outside of just the focus that we as game wardens have. But what you will find is you'll find us working hand in hand. I mean, some uh. of the best people we've worked with are dedicated rangers on forest service for some of the special operations, um, you know, drug cartel stuff Yeah, with some of this tainted cannabis stuff. I mean, it was a it was a U.S. Forest Service ranger, a law enforcement officer, LEO, in not far from Temecula, Riverside County, from an area we both know in California where I started my career, that really exposes to me on his forest of seeing, you know, these grow sites for the first time um, when the whole uh, the cannabis cartel thing started in California way back about the time I started my career. So they have that big thing to tackle. So they don't get as much time to just focus on, you know, the, uh, the wildlife violations where we do, I mean, that's, that's our target and outreach education and, and directly stopping those poaching crimes and those wildlife, uh, water losses and crimes like that is what we do. How many, how many game wardens would there be per, per oh. square mileage? I mean, how, you guys are yeah. responsible for a lot, right? We, we cover a lot of ground and, yeah. you know, you hear me talk a little bit, um, quite a bit actually about the thin green line mm-hmm. and, you know, the thin green line being, the thin green line of conservation officers, rangers, military, border patrol. We all use the thin green line flag. It's kind of become part of my brand. I'm passionate about that part of it mm. because the thin green line truly hasn't been any thinner. When you look at the number of game wardens compared to the population of the country, yeah. it just skyrocketed. And, you know, in my first book, War in the Woods, we did toward the end in the afterward, we had a, basically a, a, a matrix, if you will, that had the number of game wardens in each state the total number of game wardens in the country, and then the population and all the impacts that are slowly growing in our wildlands. And Hidden War comes out almost, a, ironically not planned this way, but a decade later, what, what mm-hmm. demographic has changed in the country? And we've gained about seven or 800 game wardens nationally with all the states combined. Yeah. You could imagine what the population has done in America yeah. in a decade. And how many more heinous crimes, like what we're you know getting into to talk about today, amongst other things, have increased. So the thin green line's getting thinner and 
to put it in perspective, when I went to special ops, we were a dedicated fire team like you guys were, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in special forces. And we were running around as a unit all the time. But when I was a patrol lieutenant or a warden even before that, I was responsible for 200 square miles or maybe mm-hmm. more, Wow! you know, of South Santa Clara County. And um, there was one other game warden, Mark, to the north that was the, my San Jose partner. Yeah. And there were always two vacancies because you couldn't keep people in the Bay Area because of cost of living. We couldn't hire people fast enough to fill the void. So our districts were double what they were supposed to be, and they were still overwhelming. Wow. So, you know, it, it's thin. And there's definitely still a shortage, even though we've gained some bodies um, and we've gained some salary and we gained some legitimacy through teams like the Met, um, our special ops team, the wildlife trafficking team, specialized units, and what all the good work the patrol folks are doing and the Marine folks are doing, we're still vastly understaffed. Yeah. And that's kind of where this almost all started from because the remoteness, the austere environment, and then you're, you're not just dealing with conservation issues and forcing uh, hunting laws, you run into these illegal groves for the first time that involved right. some of the most dangerous, uh, you know, organized crime organizations in the world. Yeah. Uh, how does that start? Because, you, you know, you said it happened in the beginning. Do you, is there a specific moment in which that started? It was... It was really interesting because when I was a pup, a brand new game warden in Riverside County, and I was only down there. I went to the academy in 1992. It was like February to about June, July, or somewhere in August there. Did the FTO program, and I got sent to an area I was completely unfamiliar with, and it was Western Riverside County, um, Temecula, Murrieta, Lake Elsinore. Um, When I got down there, I wanted to just be the best game warden I could. I wanted to hit the ground running. I wanted to bust spotlighters, guys, you know, spotlighting deer at night and doing all that kind of stuff, people taking too many fish and get, you know, hardcore poachers taking all of our wildlife in these remote areas. And I did a lot of that. And that was a heck of a training ground, man, because mm. it was a wild west down there. Yeah. I mean, by far, you know, 10 times the amount of poaching, heinous poaching I saw in Southern California than I did when I got back to the, say the Silicon Valley. So the learning curve was quick. But I remember I met a really cool Forest Service LEO that was ex-Border Patrol, military background, named Travis Tippett, lifelong friend ever since. And he was a fairly new warden, or I'm sorry, ranger for the Cleveland National Forest right there that borders Camp Pendleton, the Marine Corps Training Center. And we met up one night and I saw him work in the valley. And I haven't told this story, I think, anywhere on any public forum. But this is kind of a cool one because I'm watching him cruise through his valley below. And I'm I'm on this overwatch. I found this real, you know, strategic overwatch to watch the whole valley where I could sneak down, bust anybody if they're spotlighting deer. And I see this slow rolling vehicle running through and he's lighting up some things. I'm like, ah, I got my first spotlighter. I've only been down here a month. I'm going to make my reputation, (laughs) you know, really, really, man, make the lieutenant all happy, prove myself. Cause that was the thing, you know, you come right behind the ears. That was the big crime is getting an arm guy at night. That was the big, big, big case to get. And I go sneaking up behind him and, you know, we had the sneak lights on our trucks. We ran blacked out. We didn't have MVGs yet. So we're just, you know, kind of roguing it, but I'm creeping along behind him and I light him up and then he lights me up. I'm like, uh Oh, this is another LA this is another law enforcement brother. What am I doing? I'm like, I blew this one. Felt stupid. He gets out. He's under my spotlight. He's like, Hey, I'm forest service. I'm like, I'm fishing game. You know, how you doing? Warden Norris, uh, you know, friendly <laughs> Off, forces officer coordination. So we start having a conversation, Yeah, shut our lights down. Where are you from? How'd you get here? Blah, 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 blah. I find out he's a long range shooter. He's a predator hunter. He wants to learn to hand load. I've been a precision hand loader of ammunition, you know, since I was like 14. Yeah. As a kid with your dad growing with, up. With that. dad growing yeah. up. And that was it, you know, make the most accurate stuff. And I didn't quite know at that point when I met Travis, but that was actually going to start 
my desire to get into special operations on some level, whether it be military, now I'm in a domestic law enforcement, outdoor, you know, wildlife protection group that I really love. And they were starting to work these uh, drug trapping organization, these cartel grow ops um, from these guys out of Mexico, actually in that forest around that time. That's when they were first kind of coming across the border and finding all this open country that they could just make this tainted cannabis and multi-million dollar black market ops go, go hot and heavy. So he had three or four gardens actually operating in their forest and they were working them with drug task forces and with forest service LEO teams to go raid them and, and get them out. Um, and he invited me on one. And, you know, I mean, I was really naive. I was really, really juvenile on the camouflage and the field craft, but did the best I could, went in on a raid with them hiked into this thing. It was probably a four mile, pretty good hump, no trail, very, you know, very loose trail in places. And I saw the encampments and the bunks and the camouflage and punji pits and, you know, these massive marijuana plants. And we didn't know at the time, all those, those EPA banned, you know, carboferrin poisons were on them. What? Actually on the cannabis that's going out into the black market. And I dive into that in the new book, especially. But when I saw that, I went, these are flashbacks to Vietnam. Movies. I was just thinking Vietnam. I was like, this, this is, is straight Vietnam. up Vietnam. Patrol base, brushy, yeah. you know, it was like jungly areas. Um, and, you know, at the time, nobody was catching any bad guys. The tactics were really early. And then ironically, um, we just really hit it off. And he said, you want to go on more raids? I said, yeah, I want to check this out. I, I don't know if it's really in my, my MOS, if you will. It's not protocol for a game warden to do this, but we're a force multiplier. They're as thin as we are. As far as, you know, forest service rangers, they cover bigger uh, t territory than we do. And um, then he said, well, hey, we have some training coming up. And it's a third special forces Green Beret group that are doing land nav and they're doing open field movement and camouflage and field craft. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm going to train with SF. I'm a brand new game warden in wow. Temecula in my first house. I'm like, I'm in. So your guys actually, from your background and your old unit, that's so crazy. We're actually training us for weeks at a time and they couldn't go in obviously and do any domestic yeah. operations, but they could be on the fringes. They could set us up on how to do LPOPs. Yeah. Um, I was learning all of that. And you know, I'm like 22 years old Yeah. and I'm like, okay, this is, this is the direction I want to go. And there was, I didn't know it at the time, but the, the switch had flipped inside that I needed to get a tactical level of proficiency ahead of the game. Cause I just kind of had this sense that 10, 20 years down the road, the progressive evolution of what game warns are going to have to deal with is going to get way Western than catching an illegal fisherman or, or a guy spotlight at night. It's going to get crazy when I saw those cartel grows. Um, and then things really ramped up when I got to the Silicon Valley. So are the Rangers, are they, do they already have a special operations team at that time? Or are they, are they like just slowly evolving it, slow rolling like you guys were? Yeah, it was a slow roll. They didn't have dedicated teams, but they would get rangers from different districts. They'd bring them from other states, you mm -hmm. know, sometimes to, to do a marijuana operation on these trespass grow operations. Um, but the training they were getting was kind of ad hoc and good stuff, like from, you know, third SF group coming in. That specific training was not only to make the ranger career more effective, but really to kind of dial them in for missions like this. Yeah. But we weren't a formalized team. It was the same thing like when my first book covers that period from about 04 and then 05 when my partner was shot and almost killed in that Sierra Azul mission that was nuts. Yeah. Where we kind of, you know, eyes open how unprepared we were, what we needed to change to not let that happen again and to be more effective with uh, combating these guys. It was the type of thing where we didn't have a blessing of a formalized unit within each agency, but we kind of gravitated the right guys that were the tacticians, the right guys, just like in an SF group that yeah. you're from, they, they gravitated toward specializing in it 
in the game warden field in mm-hmm. their districts or in the sheriff's department from their SWAT unit um, or their sniper background from the military, um, hunting background mm-hmm. from, you know, a, a park ranger, if you will. And then we would all come together because there just weren't enough bodies to do it safely. And Forest Service was doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And they are, they still are to this day. They're, you know, in the states that it's most prevalent, mostly California, West Coast, but in other parts of the country as well. They're focused, there's a certain number of law enforcement officers and supervisors and canine handlers at the federal level that are amazing yeah. because they're specializing in it, um, even without a team, and they're just getting better by exposure. Yeah. Know, by yeah, exposure. so at the, in the beginning stages of, of this, it's a lot of ad hoc. They're just figuring it out. As, it really you're is. figuring it out as you go. Right. Um, so talk to me about just, because I, I want to always bring this back to survival and sure. um, in, the, in the podcast. But what is your current capability at this point, which is pre-evolvement of understanding like what we're getting ourselves into? What, what's, your, what's your capacity and capability? A truck, a gun? What, right. kind of, what kind of setup do you have? Yeah, we're running in a, in a patrol truck. At the time, they were all green or dark blue, and mm-hmm. it's a 4x4, four four, some SUVs, mostly pickups. And we had, at this time, early, early on, when we're talking Riverside County days, we didn't have a delineated patrol rifle. It was an 870 shotgun and it was two Glocks. And we had just, I was the first academy to get a semi-automatic pistol for the agency when typically before that. It was a wheel gun? It was a wheel gun. It was a 686 Smith & Wesson 357. And when I actually got my loadout kit to get prepared for the academy on my Sam Brown, it was, you know, get speed loader pouches, get a holster for a 686. And then I get to the academy and I'm one of the youngest guys there off the civilian list with a bunch of veterans and, you know, ex or lifeguards and state park rangers that are lateraling over and Greg Orr, who was a Vietnam veteran, amazing guy in Vietnam and had a lot of loss there, a lot of combat experience. And he's my TAC officer and mm-hmm. he's going to kick our asses. No pun intended. He was the guy we needed and I needed at that stage of my young career um, to, to elevate the level I needed to elevate. But he comes in with a Glock 2240 cal in a Safari land basket weave speed holster. And I went, what? <laughs> that's that polymer gun my dad doesn't like because he's a 1911 guy and he's a combat Tupperware. It's a terrorist gun. It could defeat metal detectors. And I'm like, oh, and I was just getting into semi-autos at the time yeah. myself. But yeah. So we were the first agency um, that did what all the other agencies didn't do because they didn't trust in the Glock system. They bought... Um, you know, like 4006 Smith and Wessons with a decocker. They all steel. got there at some point now. They all got there, <laughs> but we, years. but our little old school agency that's not known for being that progressive at the time because the right guys were on the statewide firearms yeah. committee, like Greg, yeah. like these, you know, gun guys that were breaking tradition and best thing we ever did. Wow. So I was in that first academy, fire the first shots with the Glock 40. So I had that as a duty gun, loved it. We had a Glock 27 subcompact as our backup off duty mm-hmm. concealed carry. Um, but 870, huh? You yeah. didn't have a rifle? Not yet. Not yet. We had a rifle. Our, our firearms policy allowed for a rifle, but it was any rifle if you qualified with it and could get an armor inspected. So some guys, Vietnam veterans, would have an M16A1 or an AR version, semi-auto. Yeah. Some guys would have Ruger Ranch rifles, the Mini 14, mm-hmm. the GB version. Some guys would have 30-30 lever guns. Some guys would take their 270 Model 70 bolt action, wow. you know, and, and our call course was pretty, it was 100 yards. Yeah. It was all, you know, pretty accurate shooting. There wasn't any tactics involved in it. Now, fast forward, I started, my second year in, I was already getting nominated to go to firearms instructor school with the FBI. Mm. I was around a lot of tactical types in Southern California, and I knew that was going to continue when I made it back home to the Silicon Valley, but I was seeing what 
the feds were doing. I was seeing what third special forces were doing when they happened to be in the woods training us when I'm just a pup That's game so on Riverside awesome. and I'm picking oh, their brain that. on, well, you guys, I think they were just going to the, uh, the M nine at the time mm-hmm. there, you guys were pushing Berettas and you, you mm-hmm. know, M fours and things like that learning, you know, optics were really, really fresh yeah. for you guys. Yeah. And they were like, I mean, space age, Star Trek stuff for us, mm-hmm. but it, it, it paved the, you know, it paved the way. Um, and then fast forward to, uh, about, uh, you know, early 2000s, mm-hmm. right around 9-11 and when, um, you know, the global war on terror was about to start, we decided we needed a statewide issued patrol rifle. We needed to be uniform, mm-hmm. we needed ammunition, we needed armor inspections, and we needed tactics. And we were a poor agency. So one of our chiefs involved in this firearms committee, Greg and the guys that I just mentioned, they had a connection through the DRMO program of military loaner stuff. And we got 144 mil spec, almost brand new out of the box M14s. That's so amazing. And I was the pup guy, the youngest guy on the firearms committee that had just been nominated to be a rep for the committee. And there's like, basically in our firearms committee, it was a real honorable place to be. It was yeah. to be get chosen for it was crazy. There was only one in each district and there were seven districts in the state. And you basically were a train the trainer. You brought all the new policies to the chiefs. You tested new weaponry, defensive tactics, ground fighting, all of our arrest and control. It was all all of that. But I was coming on when the M14 was starting. So I got kind of pushed into spearheading that as the young guy to develop the training curriculum, um, you know, how we were going to get these out to the field 20 at a time and fell in love with the rifle, man. It was cool. What a great rifle, right? It was amazing. Yeah. And I know you What year was that? What year? Uh, that was 2003, 2004. Wow. So that became the first patrol-wide rifle that you guys yep. were issued. That was the first battle rifle that was officially a department of fishing game. It was fishing game at the time. Yeah. Our patrol rifle. And so all the trucks had to get retrofitted with Electrolocks that would hold that big, you know, they're all the 22-inch barrel variant, the mil-spec ones. They all were full auto capable, just the selectors pulled out and super accurate. You know, um, we did my background in hand loading and ballistics. Mm-hmm. I got roped in with the, with the mentors, you know, kind of the patriarchs on the, on what the ammo did you guys go with? We ended up, um, we ended up going with a couple different ones. We started with Hornady tap mm-hmm. and it was just like a ballistic tip. It was a little too frangible, mm-hmm. a little too rapid expanding for if we had to put down a big black bear or a mountain lion or anything really big. Unbeknownst to me, I ended up using my M14 in our first gunfight um, on a cartel grow in 2005 when my partner was shot. And I'm glad we were d- doing bonded bullets then to penetrate through, you know, dirt and Manzanita, stuff the 5.56s and all the M4 carbines that were being shot during that gunfight by my sheriff's office partners. Very few rounds were getting to the bad guys because of all the brush cover, the deflection. Yeah. Um, stuff we can go into based on that on that incident that we did a lot of forensic dissection on. Um but we ended up going to attack bonded federal load, um, federal actually made a one-off load mm. to our specs that later became the civilian fusion, federal fusion. Oh, wow. It was just basically like a Nosler AccuBond or any yeah. of these electric, you know, electronically bonded bullets, lead core to the alloy of the copper, but flash suppressant powders, nickel cases, um, you know, low flash signatures. So they'd work in marine environments, desert environments, running the gun when it was dirty. And that is a great load, but we still run, you oh, know, wow. we, we run that load because we have to, we have to penetrate big stuff on the animal front, barricaded suspects, window glass, car doors does real well, not really a CQB weapon, obviously, but we've, we've adopted and changed things around for different loads for that on the new rifle that we've got now. Well, you know, your job in, before we get into the cartel stuff, 
your job, what is a warden's job specifically in conservation and enforcement of the law? What is it? What do you guys do? Yeah, we're sworn to do anything to protect wildlife, waterways, and wildlands. Mm-hmm. We enforce the Fish and Game Code, and the it's called the California Code of Regulations, Title 14, which is everything environmental. Yeah. Water code stuff, so water pollution from developments, oil spills, chemical dumps, um, that, you know, we do it on that front. Poaching of wildlife, taking wildlife out of season, commercial wildlife poaching where... You know, you got a, an organized group, say, po- diving for abalone off the California coastline. Which is a huge problem. Huge, huge problem. Huge, yeah. yeah. And it makes, it's it's a multi-million dollar industry of being sold on the black market illegally through restaurants, bear gallbladders, um, sturgeon roe and caviar, you know, the eggs from certain oh, yeah. fish. Um, and now wildlife trafficking has really blown up because shortly after the marijuana enforcement team, our unit was built. It was mandated federally under the Obama administration that every fish and game organization in every state had to have a wildlife trafficking unit because of the ivory and the millions and millions of dollars of the ivory trade being, you know, illegally imported into America and the Orient and all other countries. So rhino, elephant ivory, all that kind of stuff. We, we dabble in that very heavily. Um, And is that, is that enforcement coming from overseas via ship? And yeah. landing in in the uh, in California specifically, yeah. Uh, so you're just cutting it off. We're we're cutting it off, and we're also interdicting it once it gets here illegally, and then it's trying to be sold in oh, the black distributed market. Distributed in the black market, and we're infiltrating that black market, setting up takedowns, doing what we need to do on yeah. that. So, um, marine enforcement. We have some state of the art patrol boats that are 100 miles off the coast, sometimes of Southern California. Oh, wow. So you guys are in the waters as well. We're in the waters a lot. Oh. And, and something that I go into in the new book, and I have a few pictures of this. And ironically, we haven't talked about this in any forums, um, any other podcasts. And, and you just triggered a real, real good thought, Mike, is our MET team have been integrating with our offshore patrol vessel teams, some of our best patrol boat guys. Um, training them on interdiction, you know, like you're going out to board what you think is a lobster fishing boat or it's a party boat off the coast. And it may be one of these cartel drug panga boats. Mm. Mast is a civilian boat to bring in loads of clandestine drugs, bring in people, smuggle guns. You just don't know. So, um, the year I retired was a really cool year because I got to integrate with old boat buddies that were running great, great operations down on the Southern California coastline. And we integrated some amazing training, our snipers, you know, shooting on water on our floating target systems, um, overboard drills, small vessel engagements, skiff to skiff, doing all of that kind of stuff. It's, it's so funny because I'm, I'm having this vision of, uh, my old job in special operations where. You have to be a jack of all trades. You have you to do, do everything. You do. Right? Because you have to be good in the woods. You got to be good in the city. You got to be good on the water. Yeah. And then you have to be able to cross train. And then, you know, whichever environment you're in, being able to adapt to that environment. And you guys have to be uh, all of the above, right? Yeah. And, and that's the fun of it, right? I yeah. mean, like from your SF days. It sounds exciting. <laughs> when, when, we, when you got your, you know, listening to your story, yeah. which is an amazing story, how you got to that point after all the great things you did in your career and you got blessed with, okay. Build the team you want to build. Yeah. The gloves are off. Get the equipment, the people, you know, expand your capabilities to handle anything mm-hmm. that you're going to need with SIF team. We had the same deal with Met, except we, you know, I was thinking, okay, it's going to be mostly a wooded team. Mm-hmm. You know, California, we could be at 13,000 feet on the Mount Whitney side of Eastern Cal, you know, mm-hmm. the Eastern Sierras. We could be in the desert. We could be on the water's edge of the ocean. We could be in jungle like riparian redwood forests. We wow. operated everywhere. So when we built MET, and then I built the sniper unit a few months after MET was formed, 
But cool thing was, was equipping and training all those environments, which we had never done before. So getting to go out with our boat guys, okay, we're going to go do, we're going to do rappelling and mountaineering. So we're going to go to the mountain Marine warfare center off, you know, Sonora pass where all branches go for the winter warfare. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, they're rappelling, um, you know, uh, terrain and the ropes courses and stuff. And we started doing that and people were like, well, why do you need to repel? Um, because some of these places we're going to drop into are going to be really weird, you know, yeah. and to set snipers on overwatch at 12,000 feet, we may have to do that. And we have yeah. getting our canines down cliffs, having them, you know, not only in and out of choppers and, you know, spy lining or short hauling with us, you know, on a, on a long line, but going down a rappelling rope or ascending up a cliff, we get the dogs doing all of that stuff. And then we're on the water and, you know, the water thing with the panga threat from the cartels and some of this offshore presence of this organized group versus just embedded inside our land, our, our you know, domestic land borders, a little bit, it was eye-opening. And that was really starting to ramp up about the time Met started. So I went, oh man, this is going to be another challenge, but I got to get, a, I got to take a breath. I got to get us good on the ground. The yeah. guys on the team. Has to be built up proper. Yeah, there was just, there was more to the job than we thought we'd encounter so quickly, mm -hmm. but that was the challenge and that was the fun of it. And thank heaven for having great, great guys. Um, the guy that's now a captain of our, you know, one of our cannabis units and overseas met, um, from an administrative level, you know, retired 20 year veteran of SEAL teams, nine years as a sniper, big outdoor guy. Um, so frog as he's called in the book and I won't say his real name cause he's still operational yeah. having his experience, having experience, um, two amazing fabricators that are like MacGyver with a welding torch and can build anything. Um, Shang and, uh, uh, Tango as they're called in the book. I needed a floating target system for doing these panga interdictions and sniper training off, off the vessel. And they made a modular system with steel, with paper targets. It floated out there, you know, and other agencies and military guys are going, man, that thing's modular. You throw it in a boat, you break it down, you put it out a hundred miles off offshore, get swells, you know, get That's awesome. command fire drills. Wish we had that. You know, I, I wish we did too, you know, way That's years crazy. ago, but, but now just seeing, having that capability and getting two guys that can create, going to work in their shops. Like, oh, this is actually, a, this is for work. Yeah. You know? But it's going to, it's going to be more than just building something. So yeah, we just, we just fill and flow. That's our team's motto, fill and flow, adapt, you know, handle any challenge you got, put the right people in front of it. And as you know, with a, with a, you know, top 1% team, it was so easy. Yeah. I could say, Tango, Shang, can you guys create this? I can Done. build stuff. I'm not a welder like yeah. you guys are. Yeah, boss, we got this, mm. you know, and they just go to work and can I see, oh, we're going to surprise you. And they just overdid it. And I was just proud and yeah. And then on the back, they stenciled our emblem, you know, on the pontoon on the bottom and they put USSC and then hyphen weed. And I'm like, that's cool. <laughs> like, yeah, we just wanted to, we're not sure you'd like that. I go, that's great, man. That's awesome. Let's, let's be innovative. So that's things awesome. like that, you know, but yeah, it was, it was a lot. Was, was poaching a big issue in California? Is it, and is it still an issue when you were, when you were a warden? Surprisingly it is. Really? You don't think of poaching in California being that big of a deal versus yeah. like maybe Arizona here with big mule deer or elk or Montana, but no, it's huge. Wow. And what people don't realize about California, and this is it, um, California is full of a lot of great people a lot of great resource and some of the most diverse terrain in the world. Mm. I mean, you think of California being one of only six Mediterranean climates on the globe and that's why cost of living is so high. And that's mm -hmm. why, you know, it's such, it's such good weather year round to do so many good outdoor activities. It's also why it's a great weed state, which we'll get into a little later mm -hmm. why the cartels embedded there. But knowing that and knowing, I mean, you have mule deer, subspecies of the mule deer, the black tail coastal deer that I cut my teeth on and still love to hunt, mm -hmm. wild hogs, turkeys, antelope. We have tule elk herds. Every marine 
species you can imagine in the ocean. I mean, really more diverse than most other hunting states. And there's still hunting allowed for all, most all of those species. And still a, you know, percentage, it's not a lot, but there's still a lot of hunting going on in California. I still, you know, pay the big money to be, I'm a non-resident of California now, so I pay for the expensive tags and I get the home tags in Montana now. Um, so there's a lot going on there. And we, we talk about the special operations focus of what our team's mission is, and it does not in any way negate the good work and necessary work that any of the other divisions are doing because they are, it's a thin green line, overwhelming task. Yeah. We just don't have enough bodies to check enough anglers to make sure it's getting done right. We don't have enough wardens to check all, you know, legitimate hunters are great. There are allies, but you need to get those, you know, that 1% poacher and they're hard to catch. Wow. And they're still getting away with a lot of wildlife crime that we're not catching. It's just the way the game works, unfortunately. So you, this is pre-standing up teams uh, for special operations addressing a specific threat. And you're just out there, you're you're looking for these yeah. poachers. And then when is the first time that you start running across um, the frequency and cartel grows? And what does that look like? It was 2004. And it was um, the first chapter of War in the Woods, the first book dives into this because I was, I was working trout season opener really heavy in the Silicon Valley because we have a lot of creeks that are still spawning steelhead channels that go all the way to the ocean. You still get migrating steelhead all the way into South Silicon Valley. Wow. Which are pristine fish, right? That's they're beautiful. so they're so yeah. limited on the West Coast. Yeah. They're the feds price them at like thirty thousand dollars a fish. Wow. I mean, that's how limited they are, brother. So that's insane. When you look at that, um, I was and loving trout and all fisheries growing up as a fisherman and an angler, as well as a hunter with my, my family, I was focusing on that. That's usually middle April and we just dive in and that's like a targeted thing we're doing. And then I got a phone call from codename GI in the first book. And he was a lifelong friend of my family. He was also a fellow San Jose state um, fisheries biologist graduate in his master's program, doing a study on steelhead trout vitality, frogs and all these aquatics in a creek that came out of Henry Coe Park where I met that game warden. Mm -hmm. So going full circle to this story, he calls me like one Saturday morning in April and goes, dude, we got some problems up on my, my study area. I've got two creeks, one up Dexter Canyon, one up this other Canyon. And this one's flowing great. Like it should, cause it's April. So all mm -hmm. the runoff, the streams are ripping. There's nowhere near summer dry, but in the left one, it's bone dry. There are there's debris and everything in the creek. I got dead fish. I got dead frogs. This is a huge, huge problem. Can we go check it out? I went, absolutely. We got to get up there and check it out because I knew how sens sensitive the fishery was and I knew how passionate he was and he was a personal friend. So I throw him in the patrol truck, go to the top of the ridge, get behind the lock gate. I grab my backpack. I got my AR, um, basic, you know, first aid supplies, not the good trauma stuff we had later because this is 04. He's an unarmed civilian and we dive down into the canyon from the top to try to find out what this water diversion is. And I'm thinking, Mike, this is going to be a cattleman taking water illegally, you know, for his farm or for his cattle or something, something sedate. We dive into the canyon we find, and it's like a little mini Grand Canyon where the headwaters of this creek is. And we're about two and a half miles from the bottom of where this thing started. It's a long creek. And um, we see Visqueen plastic, you know, collecting all the water where it's kind of dammed up. And then here's a water line, a diversion, the black poly pipe water line going straight down the dry channel. That's all dry below the dam they built. I'm like, that's pretty rudimentary, man. I've never seen a water diversion like that, but that sucks. That's a lot of dead animals below here. So, you know, we go down the rabbit hole, 
We start tactically working down the creek bottom, trying to hug the edge to have, you know, a little bit of concealment and cover. And as we go about 200 yards down that trail, I see 18 inch marijuana plants ahead of me on both sides of the creek. I'm like, oh, that's what this is for. And then a couple minutes later, we start seeing like, like a tarp, like a hooch, but all camouflaged and spray painted, you know, tactically, like I would camo my gear for a, for a kit. Mm-hmm. I've never, that's, that's not a farmer. That's not a rancher. This is weird. Then I see two Latin, you know, two Hispanic guys in the BDUs with AKs, machetes, walking along the bottom of this farm, tending the plants a little bit, chopping some stuff up, digging holes around them and kind of looking around, you know, having no idea we're there, but situationally aware of this area, like it was theirs. And I went, man, (laughs) Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. This just got Western. So my mind's reeling. And we're hugging this, this creek bank where it's, a, where it's an erosion cut, and they're coming right at us. And I've got my red dot on them, and I'm like, we get in a gunfight today? I got no cell coverage, I got no radio coverage, and I have an unarmed civilian with me. Wow. This is going to be a very, very bad day if this thing goes Western or this thing goes Winchester. Mm-hmm. And so they come around, they tend their plants, they look around, we got a concealment, I'm on them. And then they, they just start cutting uphill and they double back and pucker packer. I took a deep breath. We made sure they got down. Nice thing about GI is very tactically sound. I mean, he's in that Canyon by himself. That grow was being built and developed and was probably under his nose for years. He's by himself up there all the time. Wow. I haven't told, and we haven't even really addressed that before. So, and then we, we bust that big straight up climb, just heart pounding, but the adrenaline's going, I'm like, what did I just see? We got, who do I talk to? I got to talk to a narcotics group, task force guys, guys doing this drug enforcement. I've never worked with this game warden. Boom, boom. I saw this in Southern California service, never really did any more of it. Got transplanted back home. That was about a 10 year gap. And then here I am. Yeah. It's in my backyard. So you've seen grows before, but you've never seen grows being monitored by dudes in BDUs, no, AKs, that no, kind of thing, which no. is completely different. Yeah, we had never seen bad guys in Southern California. They yeah. were there. They were armed the same way, guaranteed, yeah. and they had the same clothing because it's all the same kind of group of how they're set up. Now, granted, some are more aggressive than others, depending on what part of the state you're in, what cell they're working for, we've learned. But they're always armed at some level. They're always situationally aware. They know what they're doing is high on the felony scale. And, you know, they're 95% are deportable felons that don't have, they, they're not legal immigrants for, you know, they're from a cartel organization being transplanted here to do a job. Yeah. So they have a lot to lose. Can you, know? you pin those guys as cartel? Um, it, and does it change anything? Like if you, if, if you rolled those two dudes up that evening or that afternoon, yeah. what were the laws back then? Have they changed? And then what, what would become of them? Would they go to prison in America or they just be deported? They probably would have been deported at the time because they would have been identified as deportable felons. Nine times out of 10 growers like that, that are that armed have a pretty extensive criminal history. We find out in Mexico or in America under a fake ID. You'll be able to see both if you identify who it is. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. We can, we can, we can ascertain all that if they've been identified or we'll try to identify them in the system and reach out to other people that can identify them. And the problem with that was Everybody was new to it because no one ever saw these guys. It was like a ghost when you got to these wow. growth sites, you know, like in Southern California in the, you know, late nineties or the early nineties, rather, when I was going into those grows, I only got to go on one or two of them. But I remember talking to Travis and the other LEOs that they'd go in and the guys would be in escape tunnels. They'd bug out before anyone landed. Wow. The tactics just weren't honed. So they'd find an occasional gun maybe, but very few weapons even because the weapons usually went with the bad guys. 
So there was never any urgency to the threat. It's just like, oh, wow, it's kind of a nomadic camp. Looks kind of like Vietnam, but no one's getting hurt. Let's just cut the plants. Let's get out of here. Mm-hmm. And then when I saw what I saw, I went, that's when the light bulb went off. Yeah. Fortunately for me, when I saw that threat, I realized, okay, a patrol game warden can't tackle this alone. He can't tackle it in a sheriff's like uniform that we, that we, you know, wear when we're on patrol out of our truck. We can't drive up to grow sites in our truck. This is going to be a, you know, deep woods operation. You're going to be cut off whether there's one, two, or 10 of us. And we need to be tactically prepared. You know, we need to be tactically prepared to take care of our own asses medically. If someone gets shot, worst case or breaks a bone or whatever. Um, but we were light years from that. So that's when I started on that particular mission, two sheriff's deputies that are really, really motivated special ops guys that were guests on that mission. We just became friends after that mission with everything we saw that wasn't done the way we liked it, especially environmentally and tactically to catch guys. Cause we wanted to catch guys. And we started teaming up and then that led into that gun, that first gunfight in 05 where, where uh, Kyle was shot. And I happened to be with some great operators in the sheriff's office that, you know, again, when you've been in battle like that and you're on your own soil, when you're looking down at Google and eBay and Facebook and the headquarters of the tech capital and getting in gunfights with armed cartel guys during harvest time, you know, it just, it didn't compute, but it brought home how serious this problem is. Um, and that we were ill prepared. All right, so let's get into the gunfight because I want to talk specifics about this. And I've I've heard a couple of snippets of this, but I want to get into the uh, Nat's ass details because sure. this is really what kind of set the precedent for. Uh, I'm assuming for people outside of you to go, okay, maybe we're dealing with something different because yeah. you you knew what was going on yeah. because of your experience a year prior, right? But as this this situation unfolded, um, and then the after action review and everything else, I'm assuming it helped blossom, um, what became as the special operations element of the Jordan. It was, it was, it was the, it was like those back thoughts, you know, um, the agency, I think politically and progressively wasn't ready for it. Um, after the shooting, my chief at the time, Nancy Foley, who was a big supporter of what we were doing, she was very progressive she dedicated, she kept us in this game even after a warden was shot. And we took a lot of political, we took, we took some backblast, uh, blast on that. But she asked me specifically when the first book came out, you know, because it was while I was still employed and it had to be, you know, looked at by the agency and, and obviously blessed. And she was really about getting the book and the message out there for the first book. But during that conversation, when I announced I had a great book deal to tell this story the right way, um, she said, this is great. What else do we need? I said, we need a spe- we need teams or a team dedicated to this, Nance, because what we're seeing is not an exception to what just happened with this gunfight. It's going to be the norm or it's the potential for it to be the norm is there. Mm-hmm. I don't want to live these mistakes again. I don't want to go in with three game wardens and three sheriff's deputies with no contingency plan from our admin that don't know what bird can come into a hot zone to hoist us out. I mean, we had... After my partner was shot and he's down and we set up a perimeter and the bad guy that shot my partner, his partner was behind a little parapet dugout area, burn Mike, no more than seven yards ahead of me as we were pushing on an online formation, you know, through the top of the grill. And these are six foot marijuana plants, manzanita everywhere. So, I mean, I was three yards from my nearest partner left to right and they would disappear entirely as we're pushing and sweeping and doing a scan with our weapons and going forward. And I didn't know that there was a sawed off shotgun with buckshot in it aimed right at me until snake 
from the sheriff's department, saw him from the far outside of the flank of our online formation. And he and Apache engaged that guy and got him down probably seconds before I took a face full of buckshot. Wow. That was sobering. Yeah. You know, and I'm here to tell the story luckily. And, and even more importantly than me and another game warden and other guys not getting hurt because their quick action, um, my partner survived that. Mm-hmm. When he was shot by the other gunman, he survived that. And when I was engaging that other gunman and his bad guy was coming back around to finish the job or see what he had hit, that guy was out of the game. You know, he dropped, uh, hit, possibly injured, we don't know, but he was no longer a threat. But how we have tiny team. We got a, a game warden on his first marijuana operation on a cartel grow in the Silicon Valley, bleeding out of four holes, holes through both legs from a seven, six, two by 39, you know, steel core round. Wow. Bad guy only got one round off and mm-hmm. we heard that round and we knew it wasn't from an M4 and it wasn't from an M14. You and I know the difference, Yeah, how that AK sounds compared to a big, you know, seven, six, two NATO versus that five, five, six that my partner shot in the sheriff's department. When that all happened, um, I went, we don't have enough trauma dressings. We only have six guys. Now we have five guys. So we are going to hold a perimeter. We were all trained through tactical tracking operations classes to hunt armed men, even after a gunfight and safely go get them. We had just come out of that school. We were confident. A lot of the guys on the team were a Marine Marine Corps veteran, you know, that had had extensive combat history in Beirut. And the, the sheriff's deputies that we were on that mission with, all three of them were three out of the five best snipers for their SWAT team. We could have done this, but we didn't have enough guys. Yeah. So we had to just hold that perimeter until we had help. And without a contingency plan on an ops plan or our administration, as we're calling out, you know, officer down, this is what we have, send some help. No one knew what air support could come in and pull my partner out of a hot zone until that whole mountain was secure. So wow. we had... We had choppers from Cal Fire and from other agencies just saying, uh, we can't come in until it's clear. It's hot. We can't come in. We had news choppers flying over that we thought were law enforcement choppers. And we're popping the you know few smokes we have to show an LZ. And they're just getting a news bite that's all over wow. the country on you know the morning news. This was a Friday, August 5th, 2005. I'll never forget. So there was all kinds of shit we had to change. Yeah. You know, and, and my mind's reeling during this incident. First thing is is my partner going to survive? He was starting to go into shock. He had lost a lot of blood, motivated guy, best game wardens ever that I've ever, you know, one of the best, um, come out of the Academy, hit the ground running, great partner in the County. And we had, we were going to do an illegal deer baiting case the following weekend on the deer opener. And that's all he was talking about. I'll, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get patched up. I want to be on that, that baiting case with you. And I'm looking at the wounds going, oh man. <laughs> You're probably not going to be doing that. I don't yeah. think we're going to do that. And I hope you can just work again and you survive. Yeah. Um, and we were, we were keeping as calm as we could because other than the few, um, you know, gauze and a couple of Israeli bandages we had from, from Apache, from his military experience in combat in the Marine Corps, we were ill-equipped on that too. This was before anticoagulants like Celox and quick clot. Mm-hmm. We weren't doing, you know, the primary and dirty tourniquet double down. Um, trauma medicine was really rudimentary. You guys in the global war on terror were just starting to get some great stuff that we were just starting to get wind of the right within the year after that shootout. Yeah. And then yeah. we were equipment properly. But anyway, um, belaboring it, we, we, we got off that mountain and, um, and when I got that question from my chief, I said, we need a specialized team. And she said, I agree, we do, but there is no way our, um, our political administration from the director to the governor and within ranks 
you know, executive staffers all around her would ever see this because they just don't feel it's game warden work. And I went, well, she had a quote that I quote all the time, you know, change is inevitable, but growth is optional, Mm. you know, and we are creatures of habit and we don't like to change, especially in traditional law enforcement agencies. But, um, to say that game wardens don't belong in cartel, you know, marijuana gardens, um, with all the environmental crime going on that these guys cause, and we haven't even talked about the banned poisons that they bring up from Mexico because they're so deadly. They're banned in this country by the EPA from even being possessed. Mm. They're felonies. I mean, we didn't even know that stuff was out there yet, but of all, you know, at that time in my career, I'd done pretty much every patrol job or undercover job or Marine patrol, an FTO, a field training officer, firearms committee, weapons instructor. I'd done all the good stuff. And when I got to this job of all the heinous poaching I'd seen my whole career and all the dead wildlife killed illegally and the black market sales and the undercover buy bus I'd done, the stream alteration and poisoning of waterways and pollution, I had never seen a more pervasive environmental criminal than these cartel growers when I saw that 04 grow. I went, one grow can do this much damage and there's probably conservative estimate three to four or 5,000 of these grows in California a year. And I know we're missing some that's conservative. Yeah. My mind just said, I need to focus on this or some of us do mm-hmm. not everybody, not everyone wants to be a tactician or a special operations guy. Not everybody wants the, you know, the challenges, the, the danger, the physical tasks, the preparation on and off duty, as you know, but some of us do. And I was very fortunate that there were a handful within agency and it would take every bit of almost a decade later till 2013 when I was blessed to build the pilot program and handpick the right guys and get the blessing to do it, which the new book's all about. It's really about what got us finally there. And now what are the challenges to build a team of this type in a, you know, moderately progressive agency at the time and continue with that growth versus just the change that we're trying to fight, you know, eight years later, that's how long it took. It, it finally. did. It did. So we had the shooting in Oh five. And then we had two more shootings, one in 07, one in 09, um, which we came out of well. And these were other shootings with the same sheriff's deputies in the Silicon Valley. But of course, now we had trained internally. So even though we didn't have a formalized team, the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Group and my little band of game wardens and guys I would borrow from other areas of the state, like Brian Boyd and his amazing canine Phoebe, a record breaker, but just an amazing dog. And bringing Marcos down from Oroville, who was my partner in San Jose, you know, in his early years and one of my closest friends on the team, the chiefs in those districts were very, very supportive of letting guys leave other parts of the state because they were so good at this job. Um, and then Nate Arnold, the deputy chief and now deputy chief captain at the time that was my partner in building this team with the, with the chief's blessing, he was doing this type of stuff over in the central Valley, the Fresno area below Kings Canyon, Yosemite areas like that. And he started to pull us down and, you know, let me build a team for a particular mission we were doing before anything was formalized. And when all that started to happen, I knew the wheels were turning. They just weren't turning fast enough. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm patient as a hunter and a sniper. And other than that, my character flaws, I don't have patience. Mm-hmm. If there's something that needs to get done. Let's I, do it right now. I know I'm speaking to the choir because yeah. I've seen how you roll. Same man. way. You roll hot. I'm yeah. like, I'm doing it yesterday until I'm exhausted. Mm-hmm. And when I've checked this box, if it's done something good for the environment, for the friends, for the family, for training, then I'll breathe. Um, and that's how all the guys on this team are wired. So we wanted to go, 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 but we had to, you know, again, we're, and and granted it was a big task. I mean, for any law enforcement governing bureaucratic agency, especially a game warden agency, we did really well. And we were really blessed to get where we got, even though it took a while. Um, 
to make it even happen because other states that are dealing with this, and I speak all over the country now to game warden agencies nationally, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. We have the same problem. How do we build a team? How can we build a team? I don't think we have enough guys to build a team. What growing pains did you go through? And I can speak to that because we had a lot of growing pains. We made a lot of mistakes, you know, like we say, fail forward, right? Mm -hmm. And I want to save all these other groups, whether they're law enforcement, military, civilian, hiking groups going out in this, this potential danger area, save you from making the mistakes we made, learn from what we do and cut your lag time and your learning curve down exponentially, you know, but it it was a long, it was a long gap. Yeah. Why is, you know, when I was in the military, even working with Northcom, even when I worked in sitcom, we would get into reports on cartel activity because it affected national security. I mean, there was always a consideration and now training law enforcement all over the United States. I hear the same stories from them where they get the intel reports of the constant influx of mm-hmm. cartel and the the effect on human trafficking, on drugs, on crime. And in this case, in, in uh, California, uh, the illegal drug grows. But why is it so underreported in the media? It seems like if the media knew, it kind of would affect policy because it's now becoming a popular thing, but it's not really reported or it's, talked about. You know, that is, that's the biggest baffling um, you know, reality of this whole issue. I mean, when we started to get into this and uh, it was never my objective to write a book at all before retirement, if even after retirement. And I was hit up by several people that knew about the shooting incident and way it went down. And to give a little backstory on your, your point, um, I wrote a paper, basically a debrief paper for my agency. And Nancy, our chief at the time, she published it within agency and it got handed out to everybody. And I spoke on it to the entire agency over two different years, what we call our advanced officer training, half the state's all in one place, kind of a annual refresher. Um, And that's what sparked the book of, we need to get this message out. And when we did the research through the publisher of, is anyone talking about these cartel grows being in America and what the effects are on the environment? There wasn't a book, a magazine article from anyone, not even DEA, drug enforcement agencies. And I'm writing the first book as a game warden. So I'm thinking there's something wrong with this picture, but there's a bigger depth to the issue because at least I'm bringing the environmental component in that nobody was addressing at the time. Um, So the first book is published in 2010. Our agency was roped into working with production crews for the first game warden reality show called Wild Justice Mm -hmm. on National Geographic. It was the first of its type. There have been a lot of good ones since and, you know, right, wrong or indifferent about doing TV and it is arduous and, you know, you, you lose, you know, some, yeah. you got to play the opset game a little bit, but for game wardens that come from small agencies to get the message out more of a benefit than a detriment. Super important, right? So Public education. We needed it. Yeah. Public yeah. relations. Yeah. A, a, an agency with less than 400 officers, you yeah. know, and that don't have an, uh, don't have an outreach campaign or a, a whole budget and a whole division geared yeah. toward that. One thing that was cool about that show when the book came out is they were embedding with me and Santa Clara County sheriffs on some of these grow raids mm. from the helicopter in, from our assaults. You know, we didn't have the dogs yet, but they saw some of this stuff and they were exposing this visually and the public was blown up all over the world oh. watching this show. Like, what the heck? Game, uh, poison cannabis? Oh my God. Uh, I'm, I'm a black market cannabis user and I am I getting this poison stuff? Hopefully not, because now we have a legitimate cannabis industry doing it by the numbers that support our cause. And we're supporting what they're doing as long as they do it legally to, you know, make sure this stuff doesn't seep back into the market. But that was 10 years before Hidden War was published when I, after I retired, 
We've done my buddy Rick Stewart with American Zealot Productions for NRA TV and History Channel, two documentaries on this topic, one from the first book era and one where he embedded with our team and got the team training and got the dog work and got some, you know, actual raids. Um, and when I'm, you know, at the NRA annual in Indianapolis with Colonel Oliver Norse blessing, because he endorsed the book, read it, was outraged by it, not only on the drug front and the cartel front, but the poisoning of the environment. Cause he's a hunter too. He said, well, this book better be, you know, we better launch it at NRA at our annual convention. We had to have it there. And that was the first, I mean, literally days before the first hard wet copies arrived. Yeah. And to my point though, is I'm, you know, doing book signings and people all over the country going, oh my gosh, this is, we, uh, this is amazing. I hadn't, Lieutenant, I had no idea this was in America. I've never even seen this on the news. To your point, that was a decade later and we've been like wow. all, on worldwide television doing it. So it gets a, you know, it gets a little bit of attention when an incident goes down, it backs off. Something more heated comes up. And I don't know if it's because it's a domestic issue. Um, if there's not enough attention toward, and you said it best just a minute ago when you said, well, you get the intel reports on human trafficking, gun running, methamphetamine, all these different things the cartels are doing embedded within America. What we need to remember is the same groups out of central Mexico are running operations in, in, in the whole country, not just California. And the same groups doing all those things that we just mentioned are the ones doing the tainted cannabis production. It's just a different activity within the organization. So even though my team focuses on that, yeah, they're responsible in the winter when they're not growing cannabis and it's wet and the, the hills are you know flooded, they're cooking 22 pound methamphetamine cooks and sending that all over the country. They're into the synthetic fentanyl now that's killing thousands. Yeah, They're running, I mean, human trafficking is going on in every state of the union, you know? Um, and there's, we picked up some intel without going into too much detail because ongoing stuff of some major gun running mm -hmm. and ammunition running to fuel the cartel wars down south of the border, which fortunately they're not that violent amongst each other within border because it's bad for business and the attention but that's where all that's going. So it's a big enterprise and it's all very, very fluid on a business model and effective and not done so ad hoc as people might think. What is it? What is the, if we're looking at what are the consorted effort, it's a, uh, what, 10,000, uh, are we looking us wide around 10,000 gro illegal grows? What, what do you think I, the estimate is? You know, I'd say bulk of them on the West coast, bulk of them in California, but conservative estimate six to 10. Yeah. probably, you yeah. know, and, and one thing I noticed, um, there's a, we do an annual convention called the Noia. It's, it's a game wardens convention for all over the country annually. Um, and I present this stuff and I'm going to speak again at the one this year, um, and start showing the matrix and the numbers in the West coast. Hmm. And then for the book, we got some maps and in the appendices, the science part in the afterward, past the afterward, you start to see in hidden war, the trends and where it is in other States, you know, on a, on a map and little States like Tennessee or like, uh, you know, Indiana, um, Iowa, Arkansas, Oklahoma, yeah. Michigan. Pick anybody, pick any place rural. Any place rural that has like a refuge, you yeah. know, and has open space. And the guys finding these grows now are game wardens primarily or hunters and fishermen. Mm -hmm. Like the stuff you and I like to do off grid with our families. You know, they're on a pristine trout creek that no one's really getting to. They're going off trail a little bit to get to that one waterway. And all of a sudden it's got a diversion in it for a weed farm that's cartel run. Um, and they're, they're running into it too. So fortunately in the other States, they don't have the Mediterranean climate we have in California. So it's far less 
in in severity, but it's just adding to the overall numbers. What's so, the what's the incentive there for somebody from the cartel? I mean, I get the supply chain incentive, which is you know why ship it, why push it when yeah. we could have it and you know embedded into uh, the system. But but why would why would they do that? Why would they risk that? And is it is it worth the risk for them? It is. It's uh, it's cost benefit analysis. Yeah. You know, under a business model, it's like okay, I'm gonna go. I'm a grow boss, right? And a grow boss might be responsible for let's say five to ten grows. Then you have what's called a plaza boss. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a working term. A plaza boss might run a whole sector of a state, maybe even a whole state. You know, he might run fifty to hundreds of grows. You know, depending on um, how big his area of operation is, how diverse he is, how many people he has under him. And when you look at that structure um, and something I go into in the new book that I was able to, to, to talk to generically but still get the message out, um, I set in on an upper level Plaza Boss debrief with Santa Clara County, uh, you know, the Silicon Valley guys and DEA and a guy that was basically responsible for um, about 50 grow sites in Northern California and, you know, also do a methamphetamine stuff and was popped on other things and was very candid, you know, and, and, uh, very honest in our interview of the magnitude of some of this stuff and how far it goes and how easy it is to embed and how lack of any border, you know, real stoppage or, or hindrance there is to get his operatives across the border. Um, and when, when he kind of articulated to me that, you know, we know how overworked you guys are. We know how undermanned you are. And we know if I put out 10 grows in one particular county, you're probably going to find three to five of them. You're going to rate them. I'm going to lose that product, but I'm going to get five or six out. And those are 5,000 or 10,000 or 15,000 plants on the high end. And you got to look at every plant putting out at least a pound or two of bud, a couple thousand a plant, at least in profit, you tad up all the zeros and you're talking, you know, low two, $3 million profit as high as 10, 20, $30 million. Oh, wow. I mean, big money. So they don't mind losing some grow sites, you yeah. know, so it's very much worth it for them. And they're still doing production down in central Mexico, Michoacan, other parts of the highlands. Um, you know, defeating the federalities from getting, getting detected because they're good growers. Those same guys get vetted down there before they come up here. Um, those guys, the cartel's got to pay four to $7,000 max to get their best guys here. And if they do get busted and deported, they can be back in 24 hours, you know, on the, on the close end. Yeah, yeah. But three, four days, hey, man, I need you back in Northern California. I'm going to pay the guy. We're going to get you through a tunnel. However, we're going to get you back. Yeah. We've seen guys that have been deported. No, no exaggeration, 15, 20 times. Different canines have bit the same bad guy that's got murder raps. He's got assault. He's got narcotic trafficking raps. I mean, a real, real bad dude. And he's just you know, getting deported. That's the... He's just getting deported and he's coming back, you know, because he's a deportable felon. So we're not going to run through our court system. He gets back. And then in certain states with sanctuary state doctrine, like California, mild state, now you can't even talk to ICE through official channels or it, it's, it's, it's going to be a big problem for you on the state front. And those well, guys, how does that how does that work? So I, let's say you roll up a guy, yeah, and you you just can't because I, I I have a hard time understanding sanctuary uh, the negative in sanctuary when it comes to this problem, which is you identify somebody is a felon or they've committed a crime, right? But you as a local peace officer in the state that you are working for can't communicate to right. figure out if the guy has any federal 
issues right. via ice, right? Right. Is that how it works? That's exactly how it works. And that's that's the big controversy. Well, they told they tell you as an officer that? Yeah, basically we're told, and we were told, I go into this in the book, you know, not slanderous, but just honestly, especially yeah. in- Well, this is super important because I think this is like one of the this, big issues, right? This, this is some of the roots. This gets to the core. And yeah. what, what, what gets confusing is when you, when you look at the mission we're doing and you get people that, you know- Different, different listeners will take this, well, wait a minute, you know, this, this could become a racist issue. This could be a border issue. This could be an anti-immigration issue. And it's absolutely none of the above. We're not talking about immigrants from Mexico trying to chase the America dream and everybody should, right? I mean, come on, look at what the blessings we have in this country, you know, through legal channels, these are deportable felons that have criminal histories in Mexico. They're a small percentage, but a very violent group that Mexican citizens don't want anything to do with. You know, they don't want them anywhere. They don't want to be under that fear of the danger these guys pose and the power they bring and the violent nature of that, that, that violent culture of chaos that the cartels propagate. So when we can't communicate with ICE and we got to run them through state channels and we're not going to have courts necessarily wanting to prosecute somebody that's not here legally, doesn't have any assets. Uh, it's a marijuana case in a state that's regulated now unless there's environmental crime associated with it, who's really going to do a lot with that case? Is a jury going to convict somebody on that? I mean, unless there was a gun pulled and it got violent and it was a canine deployment and various things like that, that's where the debate lies. And that, and we were under orders and still are in California not to talk to ICE agents, even though, and this is, this is the, this is, here's the controversy and here's really the conflict and, and really the, um, the contradiction we're federally mandated as federal officers, you know, to work federal cases and mm. under policy to communicate with our federal brothers and sisters. Yeah. We are. But we're being told not to. But by the California Department of Justice or somewhere, it's somewhere in there. It, yeah. It's it's governor down, yeah. you know, and it, I'm not saying I'm, I'm my bosses at the administrative executive staff level aren't looking to do this. They don't want to give those orders necessarily. But yeah. as as people will read in chapter nine, our last gunfight before I retired, and it was the same property just on the Santa Cruz County side, the same property, we're 99% sure the same organization that shot my partner in 05. Because the way this group was set up, the way they were bunkered into place, the way they had high ground, chopped AK-47, sawed off shotguns, a bunch of different assault weapons, steel core ammunition, it was literally a flashback to 05 when we didn't have the team, when we were doing that assault. Well, that day we had our new team and we, and you know, talk about bringing a lot of, a lot of boys to the party. We had three canines that day. Mm-hmm. We had our two best canines and then we had a great canine from Santa Clara because nobody else would help us on that mission. So it was a couple of sheriff's deputies, God bless them. They're great canine, two of our dogs. And one out of the three bad guys had two guns coming down on us on a trail as me and our canine, Brian, uh, champ, our new canine and that point team. And I was running the point team and our QRF wasn't far behind us. And he had weapons out. He got engaged by a handgun non-fatally. Um, but fortunately none of us took fire. Dogs did a great job and we contained that problem. We 11,000 plant grow. And the irony, Mike, of that particular grow site, a third of that grow site was on the property of a place called Camp Loma, a children's summer science education camp. Oh my gosh. And this was in the middle of summer. And how those 
guys didn't interact with these kids yeah anybody is anybody's guess and we got one of the world's most pristine best mountain biking parks demonstration forest right below the canyon soquel creek running through the bottom of the canyon at all their waterways that were poisoned leach into another steelhead trout fishery one of the few on the santa cruz coastline that was one of my last missions um before so they're retirement. hidden in plain sight they're just they're hidden in plain almost, sight yeah. just staying low lip but we were told when we were doing that operation Halfway through, after we had had the gunfight, now we were on admin leave, we were taking a break, we finished the mission, and I'm in Montana decompressing way, way up on the Canadian border, and I get the call from my captain, she's like, I can't believe I gotta tell you this, but we cannot talk to Ice about this case. I go, we have him injured from a gunfight, and Ice wants to talk to him, because he's a deportable felon. She goes, can't come from us, and that, that, those were the orders. And she said, I can't believe I gotta tell you this, and you can imagine how that went over with the guys. So I could, I, I don't, I don't really understand this. I can kind of understand the whole, you stop a dude in a traffic violation right. and you don't want to go down the rabbit hole and you don't want to cross pollinate information, but this seems so different because it's so overtly, um, aggressive and dangerous. Right. And, right. and the fact that there's yeah. a system that's designed to almost facilitate the deportation of felons and potential murderers. Right. Uh, that to me just does, makes no sense. Well, and it is, it's, it doesn't make any sense. And, you know, not everyone agrees with it. And, you know, we, we can, we can debate, I mean, you could debate politics and, and where California and other states that are, that are doing some of the sanctuary state stuff are going. But we, you hit it on the head when you said this is a very small percentage of confirmed felons with heavy criminal history that you really, they're going to do damage in Mexico. They're going to do damage here. They're going to do damage in another country if they're from another country. Yeah. Th this is a threat. This is a threat to everybody, not just illegally here in America, even in the homeland, you know? So w we need to differentiate that. And I would, I'd like to think that the orchestrators, the architects of the sanctuary state doctrine, you know, have that contingency and plan that we don't want to insulate and protect these guys. One, keep them in place to do more harm to our public, first and foremost. Yeah. And secondly, that we're passionate about our wildlife waterways and wild lands. Yeah. And it's all roped into one thing, not to draw attention to the other. And it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's convoluted for sure. So we, when we built the Met, work within that, work within policy, do the best we can and try to just stop the tide and hold back the tide a little bit, knowing we're not going to stop it because these guys, whether they're deported or not, they're getting across the border very easily for a very, you know, small amount of money. And, you know, we talk about debriefing those cartel guys and, you know, the four to $7,000 figure we confirmed to get their operatives, even if they are deported, yeah. you know, in any part of the state that, you know, didn't, didn't keep them from the deportable felon status. They're still, you know, paying the money because these guys are not, you know, desperate workers seeking a job. These are vetted growers that know their stuff. And you got to respect the work they put in, <laughs> you know, yeah, they're, oh, yeah. they're a very formidable adversary, you know, like I'm sure you saw throughout your military career oh, yeah. in certain countries you went to. Yeah. It, it's crazy, man. They work hard. They camouflage well. They feel craft well. They divert water wonderfully. They process marijuana great. Um, they make a high dollar product. They do it relatively, um, you know, under, uh, basically under the radar. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the large percentage, yeah, we're catching more of them. We have gotten better at it, but we're not catching all of them. And, you know, they get a few grows out out of the many they put out there, even if many do get caught and eradicated and some of their guys do get taken into custody, 
they're still making hundreds of millions of dollars yes. in one particular part so of they, just the marijuana side. So they they may they they're fitting into the loophole, and there's really no consequence right. at the end of the day. I mean, just you get caught catch and release, and they're back at it again. Yeah. Let's talk about the environmental stuff because absolutely, when you look at when I look at this from you know, it's bipartisan for sure because mm-hmm. it affects. There, there's effects on both sides, and one of the most substantial arguments for why we would pay attention to this and put money towards an operational unit and just aggressively go out after it is the fact that it ruins the environment, Big time. It, which is huge and detrimental, uh, especially given the task that you guys are supposed to do in the first place. What are some of the things that uh, you had mentioned about the causing the two-and-a-half-mile, killing everything two-and-a-half miles right. in, the, in the stream? Talk to us about the chemical and then what other damages it's doing. Yeah, the biggest problem is, Mike, they bring uh, chemicals that were banned by the EPA about 20 years ago from being used for legitimate agriculture. Chemicals that are produced in America with trade names like carbofuran, furidan, qfuran, metafos. Um, they're all anticoagulants. They're all nerve agents or any combination mm. thereof. Um, one small container that's, you know, maybe the size of this drink, uh, this beverage container, and it's all crystalline powder in it, you know, when it's, uh, in its original form is made to be mixed in with four to 5,000 gallons of water huh. before it's distributed on edible agricultural plants and crops. This is to kill the bugs or keep bugs, the bu- yeah. rodents, you know, anything that could come in, you know, yeah. it could be, you know, strawberries, it could be corn, it could be, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and he, and we use that in America for many years. And even though, um, it was so diluted, EPA, as their testing got more solid, realized, hey, man, this stuff is still highly toxic, you know, even at a vastly diluted, distilled, you know, uh, mixed dosage. So we're going to ban it. We don't use it on anything in America. Um, Third world countries can get it. You know, it's kind of a golden item for the cartels. Um, The trade name, the growers call it is El Diablo. the devil. Wow. Yeah. We call it pink death. You hear all different trade names. Um, this stuff's just nasty. Even the growers know how nasty it is, but they use it because it's so effective. It's, it's part of the program and protocol SOPs, if you will, of the organization. And you can't get it in the U S they have to smuggle it in. They have to smuggle it in and they smuggle it out of, um, shops in Tijuana and other places within Mexico. And literally their tier one growers, their guns, their camping, equipment, all their nomadic living supplies, their water pipe, uh, the, the cannabis seeds, everything's already here for them with the infrastructure that's already embedded yeah, in they America. They just fall into it. They just fall into it. Yeah. And they go to work in an area, divert their water once their suppliers and, and embedded, you know, national operatives work uh, to get them on board, but they can't get the poison. So they smuggle the poisons in with them, camouflaged, wrapped, hidden, various different things. Um, so what we see is we see a new container of this stuff in almost every cartel grow site, trespass grow site. And if it is diluted, it's in a five to three gallon backpack sprayer, sometimes a whole container. That's not diluted. I mean, wow. I've got pictures and PowerPoints that I show when I educate every level, left, right, cannabis user, non-cannabis user, you yeah. know, whatever. Um, every faction of a grower in three color army, you know, woodland camo that we both wore for many years, early days Yeah, with a backpack sprayer on with a whole bottle of this stuff poured in and he's got no face protection, no nitrile gloves. And he's just spraying it on 11 foot plants behind Mount Hamilton in the Silicon Valley. And in the next picture I get off his cell phone, cause I, I foot tackled this guy with Sergeant Spag, Nola 
on a raid we did before Met started around 2011. And we got a cell phone and we missed the grill the year before, but the pictures we got off a cell phone were crazy. And these are two of them. And now in the next picture, he's holding up a golden eagle that came in and died instantly ingesting some of this stuff. And a golden wow. eagle is pretty rare. Yeah. You, know, you never shoot golden eagles or yeah. huntable species, protected raptor, Beautiful. right? Yeah. And he's posing with it like, I got him. He didn't get my plants. That outrages anybody that loves wildlife. You know, and when I show animal rights groups this, I show cannabis groups this, I show conservative groups this, um, military law enforcement, fly fishermen, you know, conservation groups, you name it. Everyone's like, what is this stuff? And, and, And for them to come in and they're using it like that and they're posing with the wildlife they're killing like a trophy because it just stopped that animal from, you know, taking three to $5,000 out of their pocket by you yeah. know, affecting that one plant. That's a horrible reality, you know? Yeah. Horrible reality to see animals die this way. I mean, you know, to, to a, a tablespoon of this stuff, a 400 pound black bear will come in and ingest this and they'll put out like, they'll take a tuna can, the growers, not, with no, no tuna in it, but just some oil. And they'll have empty cans out like little perimeter poison baits before you even get to the grow, not to impact it. And a black bear, a mule deer, any animal will come in and lick up a little bit of the, the, the oil Yep. because they're, they're scavengers, you know, Dead. and they're within five minutes, they're frothing at the mouth and their central nervous system shuts down and they die a violent death, a very painful death. And these are big animals. Not, no, we, we see the rabbits, we see the raptors, we see the small stuff. And I've got pictures of the baby cub, you know, like a 50 pound cub that watches mom die, you know, the big sow doesn't know why mom dies, climbs up a tree, kind of scared. And is, has ingested the poison too, just doesn't know it, and then dies as well. And you have the baby cub up in the V of the tree, mom's 10 feet below. Wow. And here's, you know, two bears. Yeah. What picture does that paint? You know, whether you're a preservationist and you don't like hunting, animal rights oriented, or you're a conservationist and like ethical legal hunting to keep all the animals out there, provided they're harvested humanely and ethically. Mm-hmm. We all agree on one thing, why it's such a unifying issue nationally that you hit perfectly is... We can take those differences and set aside. No one wants to see an animal perish that way. Yeah. And for hunters that would give anything to harvest a black bear at the prime of their life when there aren't any young around, harvest the meat, eat the meat, appreciate, respect the animal, honor the animal. And now that meat is so tainted. I mean, it's been, I mean, this stuff is like nuclear toxic, deadly, right? You're not going to ever eat that animal. That is just a, a waste of an animal with a, you know, a, an environmental, uh, environmental poisoning product that's so deadly, the, you know, the, the byproduct throughout the streams and everything is just horrendous. We see this stuff in creeks where, remember that first story where me and GI went up and saw that Bisqueen line dam? Yeah. We didn't know it at the time, but it wasn't just because there was no water downstream that everything was dead. It's because they put some of the pink death right in the water diversion, and they just pipe some of the poison water directly to the base of the plant. So it's in the soil, it's in the water. That creek's done. Wow. That creek's done. I mean, we're talking fish dead for two, three, four, five miles, depending on the amount of uh, poisons put in it. And that's what our scientists have actually, you know, um, determined scientifically. And um, and we, it, it baffles me to even talk about it still. What, like, is the, what does the cleanup look like for something like that? Because you mentioned... Early days, like when 04, when you come across this grow, and then it's time to clean. And there's a term you use for it. It starts with the R's. 
Reclamation. Reclamation. Yep. So you're trying to reclaim, I'm assuming reclaim, it comes from reclaiming or... Yeah, like yeah. Rec- it's a term that's it kind of insinuates we're reclaiming our land yeah. from a destroying invader, wherever that, whoever that is, yep. and restoring it. I, I like reclamation, but I also like restoration. Yeah. You know, environmental restoration, because it's not only reclaiming it to pristine conditions because we now have ownership of it again. Yeah. Reclamation has a term that it's been taken by someone that shouldn't have it. And that's accurate. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of why reclamation has kind of been, and um, no one's ever asked me actually the reclamation term before, and I'm glad you did. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because it's, there, it's a- There's more to it than cleanup, right? Yeah. yeah there's definitely more, yeah. definitely more to clean up. And then you have to take it back. And then the old protocol was- you took the plants because the plants were tied into budgets. Is that correct? Yeah. What it was is um, budgets from the DEA to each state, to each county, to each agency was based on the amount of plants each group eradicated throughout the year. In, pa- in pounds? or I'm Just saying, in numbers. In numbers. Yeah. So like, for instance, in Santa Clara County, um, the the uh, back in Silicon Valley, when I was starting in this early with the sheriffs and we weren't formalized from about 04 to say 2011, 2012, mm. average, we'd eradicate anywhere between, I don't know, 75 and on a, a big year, maybe 140, 150,000 plants. Mm. So our, our DSEP money, which is the acronym for the fund that goes to our agency to fight it next year is directly related to plant count. So the more plants we eradicate, the more money we're gonna have, which pays for overtime, operational time, prep time, mission planning, means we can do more ops. Yeah including the reclamation side. We started to really, as, as Fish and Game was involved, and Nancy was the chief that was really responsible for this push, was, hey, if we're involved, we want to get the reclamation component involved, um, and we want to be rewarded for reclamation because leaving a Superfund site out there for the environmental damage just to continue is, quite frankly, bullshit. Yeah. We need to do something different. And actually, the drug czars listened to us, and they started to see what our agency was doing as exemplary because environmental protection is it's the hot buzz on every circle, right? Environmentalists, conservationists, mm. patriots. I mean, it's one thing we unify on. And like we talked it's about- It's like the only thing. <laughs> it's, there you go. It's the yeah. only thing. And, and, and when nothing's unifying, and we, we talked about this you know, before and during the broadcast, and the left and right are just bashing, and we're not even really pr- doing things our country needs on issues, we're unified on this. Yeah. I can go into any group and see outrage on almost any person's face. And they can be completely the polar opposite of me, raised completely different, be completely hard left, whatever. Um, and that's where, it, that's what it's gonna take. But fortunately, our administrators at the, at the presidential level have started to reward financially for reclamation numbers. Oh. And something that was cool when we formed the tactical unit and we got met formed, um, we started to use a form that my partner, Nate Arnold, had designed bef- right before, not too long before we formed the, the MET team formally, what we call an ENF, ENF 65 form. It's it's like a matrix check sheet. Every operation you do, you record how many plants were eradicated, how many poisons you found, how many miles of water line you pulled, um, how many diversions to dams you restored, how many tons of trash were removed, how many weapons were seized, canine engagement, officer hours, Overtime hours, miles driven, blade time, bring a helicopter in. You, those helicopters are, you know, we're talking a couple thousand dollars an hour at oh, least yeah. to run a bird. And, you know, we have our own birds and we have contracts. And it, I mean, it eats up money just in seconds. And really, we, we, ha- we use helicopters that eat up more blade time on the reclamation component, nine times, 10 times more than the operational side. 
usually we don't even touch a bird until we're short hauling out because we don't like to fly in and one, announce our presence. Um, some agencies do that. That's fine. They just want to scatter growers, not have any conflict. Um, you know, obviously if I'm the first guy as a team leader with one of my partners and we're the first to drop into a grow from a short haul line, I feel like the pinata about to get batted out of the air Yeah, and we do the aerial gunning from the line and everything. But I, I sure like being able to move and scoot on the yeah. ground. So we, we go in, we do our thing early in the morning, middle of the night, whatever we need to do, NVGs if necessary. And uh, we fly out, but we're not eating a blade time. You know, very yeah. little blade time is actually eaten up during the tactical op. Um, until we get to reclamation, then it's load after load after load. And I mean, we've, we've burned up, I mean, two days of a, of a blade just doing, you know, 20, 30 loads of trash on a massive grow site. Wow. So and um, you guys are doing it independently or do you bring it in bio guys? Well, or? we're, we, we have help from other agencies, other, uh, you know, people that are trained to go in there. Sometimes Forest Service will contract with hazmat cleanup crews, yeah. but that is still evolving. Quite honestly, the money involved to bring in a hazmat team to get them in there safely, just the logistics of getting them in there, because yeah. some of this stuff's so remote, um, is pretty tough. It normally falls on us, and yeah. it falls on people I was just like thinking us. that's a, another thing you just it's, <laughs> added in the evolution yeah, of it. Yeah, it is, and it's, yeah. and it's growing. I mean, there's a, there's a group that um, I've been uh, um, roped into being an advisory board member, a really good group called... Uh, uh, cannabis removal on public lands, CROP is the mm -hmm. acronym. And they're basically all about national grows, not just in California, but a national front of bringing in funding from everywhere. You know, conservation organizations, preservation organizations, the cannabis industry, the legislature, collecting money as an NGO, and then putting that towards groups and training staff and bringing staff in that can go anywhere in the country and be basically a reclamation trained. Ooh, that's so cool. Savvy crew. We need a lot of that. I, I, I love that. I, yeah. I'm, I'm starting like a, a CBD business on the side, um, just taking, being smart with money and yeah. passionate about CBD and, and, and its uh, benefits, um, which is hemp derived. This is no THC. In right. It. But we have a, a model of the business is taking, we, we say something like, you know, we're taking uh, profits from the land and returning it back into the land because we want to take, you know, yeah. we want to make the money, but then we want to take proceeds from profits and put it back into it. But reclamation seems something very interesting to, to do because when you look at the things that you can do, maybe you shouldn't just go out and, you know, you can go out and pick up trash and do whatever it is on the trails. Right. Yeah. But reclamation seems so much more comprehensive when, it, when you're looking at cleaning what's broke or right. fixing what's broke right. for long-term survival. And, and, and truly being impactful yeah. environmentally than just, like you said, picking up trash on a trail. <sighs> and, and to the CBD side and the cannabis industry, some of our best allies are the legitimate cannabis farmers that are as organically and conservation, preservation, and lovers of wildlife and, and waterways as we are. Really? Yeah. And, and this is the irony. Huh. Everybody comes into thing like, well, you just formed a spec ops unit to fight the cartels, you know, growing marijuana. Mm -hmm. You got to be anti-cannabis. And that's furthest from the truth. Yeah. You know, I'm completely neutral. CBD, the recovery elements, yeah. the healing elements, THC, yeah. the regulation, right, wrong. You know, I don't have a stance on it, yeah. negative or positive. All I ask is if we're going to, if we're going to regulate, you know, let's just regulate smart. Yeah. Oh, let's yeah. go after the people that are really doing the damage, which we know what the cartels are doing. Yeah. We know that the legitimate cannabis industry, if they're doing the environmental, you know, protocol, um, they're educating, you know, they're making sure they're not 
you know, complicit or generating a product that has any type of orga inorganics or pesticides that could be getting into our black market of children, kids, medical patients, veterans, whoever, Yeah. which all this stuff is, this stuff is going all over the country and supplying, you know, uh, 70 to 80 plus percent of the black market. Yeah that our cannabis consumers are ingesting. And they don't want the black market. They, I mean, they I would no. think, you know, good, no. responsible farmers and right. uh, of, of hemp period um, or uh, of cannabis period would not want to compete with these guys and want to support the black, you know, going against the black market anyway. Yeah. And like, one, yeah. one of the coolest things um, that I've mentioned a few times before is I was one of the, if not the, I think I was the first LE guy to go to a cannabis growers like forum through the California Growers oh, Association. Crap. They're like narc. <laughs> like a narc speak on a panel. Wow. And I'm in BDUs, yeah. I'm in my med uniform and you know, I'm I'm going to do a PowerPoint. I'm on a panel with like cannabis organizations that are, you know, getting into the business and legislatures yeah. that pass the medical laws and are pushing prop 64 and the president, if you will, Hezekiah Allen is like the proctor. He's the moderator from California Growers Association on the panel. And there's 500 growers like in a veterans hall, like in Mendocino <laughs> County or Santa Cruz. And I walk in and you just see their eyes go, who's that dude? Oh man. And I had one gal actually look at me and go, you can't be here. That's this is a conflict of interest. You have no business being here. And I just went, give me a minute. I'm not here to work anybody. I run a team. <laughs> Outreach and education is part of it. I'm going to show about a 20 minute PowerPoint. Yeah, that's my role. And I'm going to take questions of this panel of cannabis people from all sides of the fence. And as I'm putting up the pictures of the story you we're telling, be blowing their mind. And they're just, I'm watching some of the guys and gals just mouths on the ground. Wow. Some are crying. Yeah. And they're just like what dead the dead you know black bear and her sow a dead oh. mountain lion um, punji pits our dogs dogs coming out of surgery that have been stabbed I mean all of this stuff our canines wow. and they're like that's not us yeah we don't sanction that we love our wildlife and and in all fairness there's still a lot of of black market and criminality going on even in mm -hmm. the non cartel side because people still aren't doing it right but that's there's regulation groups yeah our other cannabis groups in our agency like. The, uh, the watershed enforcement teams, the marijuana permitting teams, they deal with that. But there is a percentage of cannabis farmers that have become allies and they, you know, they say what they mean, they mean what they say, and they're putting up their time and their money to want to fight that fight and not only legitimize their clean side of the business, but actually you know, educate against this trespass cartel thing that nobody's ever going to be for. I mean, after both those meetings, I went back to my truck. I got my companion canine, Apollo, walking along, loading her in the truck, putting all my tech gear away. And I have 30 growers swarming the truck. I'm like, oh, this is getting Western. What do they want? And they're, here's business cards. And they're like, hey, Lieutenant, if you need bodies to reclimate, to clean up, we have assets, we have trucks, we'll drive anywhere. I'm like, okay. I haven't had that offer. Now, can I take you into a poison grow site? Not without training, but the fact that you're really putting up people, wow. you're making that offer, that's great. And when I get conservation groups, scout groups, um, you know, everybody wants to in, be involved. And in what it's really is, it's 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 a patriotic uh, purification of our nation coming from both sides mm -hmm. and different sides that don't see eye to eye that do not necessarily accept one another. And I've just you know we've been really lucky as the Met team to kind of be on that fine tightrope and st try to stay out of the politics and just make it, take cannabis out of it. Yeah. It's an environmental crime, public safety, national security, domestic eco-terrorism issue.
Mm. It really is. Yeah. And, and it's no exaggeration. And the Associated Press quoted me, Mike, like four or five years ago of saying, if cherry tomatoes were on the black market and worth $4,000 a pound, and they had to only be grown illegally on, you know, the, the mountains above Silicon Valley or here in the Arizona forests. We'd probably be having gunfights over tomatoes. Oh yeah, you know, so red gold, red gold, red gold yeah. instead of instead of the green rush, right? So yeah. you know, I don't I don't even like to really make it about cannabis. That is a catalyst because that's another black market item. It could be anything else. But the bottom line is, we got an environmental message. We got a public safety message that we can unify on, and that does feel good. Yeah, you know, that feels really good. You know, and we're not going to be in the same group, and that's fine. It's just so funny because I'm, I'm like looking at this from you know security minded with my degree right. in crisis <laughs> management. I'm like, yeah. well, you have the cartel there, right? They're armed. The public safety issue just alone yeah. of these, you know, being in close proximity to children, to people who are hiking or hunting, right? And it's like, man, these are armed thugs that are just in the middle of an. You know, yeah. Oh man, but. You're right. The the environmental factor and how it's destroying. Let's stand together on that at least. Yeah. Let's figure. Let's figure that out. Now you you evolve and we get into the the time period of 2013 where finally, yeah, uh, I'm finally. In, in quotations yes. that it's like they're like okay let's do this. Here we go. What is the what is the deciding factor for that? What What is the catalyst that allowed that to be done based off of you constantly, I'm assuming at this point, if I, beating it home? Oh man, this is, this is a, there's a little pride in this story and there's a little chronology of like, you know, you know, those historical moments in your career where you knew something had to change mm -hmm. when you built your, your specialized team yeah. or something that wasn't working in SF or politics or whatever. Um, and I, it's the third chapter in, in Hidden War mm -hmm. that goes, it's 20, it was a 2012 mission. It was right above the foothills of Morgan Hill where I'm born and raised. And it was, it was on Croy Road. And it was a 7,000 plant grow. It fed Uvis Creek, which went into a reservoir where I checked fishermen forever. I grew up, caught my first bluegill there. Oh, that's little, so awesome. Little pristine area, you yeah. Know? Western, southwestern Silicon Valley, mostly horses and equestrian mm -hmm. and wooded parks and stuff. And we're working with the sheriffs. We don't have met yet. Nancy's our chief. She's on board. Mike is a deputy chief, the chief that would later become badge number one and bless this team. Mike was the chief for the Northern Enforcement District where Brian Boyd, Canine Phoebe, Marcos, they were all part of that district. And because Mike was very supportive of what we were doing and we didn't have a formalized team and Nancy was supportive as our badge number one in charge, I had borrowed Brian and Phoebe to work with him and his canine. Uh, Mark had come down and we had a big complement of sheriff's deputies and a couple other patrol wardens that worked for me in patrol. I was a, a lieutenant at the time of patrol. Yeah. Just on the fringes, specializing in this in the summer though, mm -hmm. almost 24 seven. We go and do this mission. Um, we get up into position. Brian had me uh, not only leading my part of the team, the game warden complement, but Brian had me being his canine cover that if anything happens to him, I deal with the dog. I deal with the suspect that the dog's, you know, got under bite duress. If it comes to that, mm -hmm. I'm handgun armed. I'm not pushing a carbine because I got to be light. I got to be able to move, get to the taser, get to the cuffs, go hands on, whatever. And we all train on doing that. So I was like, great, I'm going to work with Brian. And we had done many missions together with the dog. Some for Wild Justice we filmed to kind of show the nature of what we needed to address with the cartel uh, cannabis problem. Um, but we had never had a bite. We had never had an apprehension. And now we got the two growers and they're in the BDUs and they're working and we're at the top of the grow site. We got an overwatch, the dogs out on point to smell. We got riflemen laid out in a good formation textbook. 
It was working like a charm. I'm like, oh man, it couldn't have gone any better. They're going to walk right into us. We're going to do an announcement. It's going to be 18, 20 yards max. If we need to deploy the dog, if they pull a weapon, it'll be light speed. And as we're coming in, coming in, coming in, bad guys coming in, the guy on the left has a big Taurus Judge pistol revolver, um, big shiny chrome thing. You can see it. And, and he's walking toward us and Brian sees him. And then we see guy number two and don't see a gun on him yet, but he's reaching for something. And right away we deploy the dog mm. because they're already, you know, almost in eyesight of us. They're about to make eye contact, rules of engagement. Gun starts, the guy that had the judge is starting to grab for his gun. Brian's sprinting. I'm sprinting right behind him. The fur missile Phoebe has already taken off. And Brian goes, John, take my dog because it, uh, we were watching Phoebe veer to the right to take guy number two. And the most immediate threat that we could actually see a gun on, my guy's pulling, but his guy actually is facing and coming out of a holster. So Brian goes hands on hand on hand with him. This guy's about to pull. Phoebe gets a bite, puts him down, biting his, his right calf. He's struggling, but taking the bite pretty hard and Phoebe's in deep. Yeah. And unbeknownst to me, I didn't know what weapon he was pulling, but it was a Russian Torkarov little seven, six, five think caliber. Yeah. And he's pulling that thing, but Phoebe had enough bite to rest on him that he couldn't just whip it out and engage me from me to you as I'm coming down on his back to tackle him. And I got two carbine riflemen coming right behind me. So this guy was this close Ooh. to laying waste to me and my partners or even hitting Brian, who's now run past him because in a fill and flow, you yeah. know, it just went to, you know, it went to typical Western. We're going to adjust, um, allow me to, you know, get him under current control get the gun out of his hand. He didn't get shot. He got bit pretty good, but yeah. he survived. I didn't get shot. My partners didn't get shot. We caught the two. We got everything contained. We got him in custody. We bandaged up the, you know, the, the dog bit suspect. Um, we start the process of the scene. We're starting to eradicate. And right away, the light bulb went off. I said, that was one of about 20 gunfights we narrowly avoided this year. Wow. And we've already had up to this point, four or five gunfights. Yeah. And I just went right up the hill where I had cell coverage and I called my chief. I called Nancy, told her how it went. I said, Phoebe was a godsend. I need her on every mission. I called Mike running Northern district. I said, thanks for lending these guys out. This was amazing. Um, if you didn't have that, you know, would, what would have that, you know, it, 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 it would have like? been, it would have been bad. a gunfight for yeah. sure. For sure. And it would have been a gunfight at, at contact distance. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd like to think skill sets and shooting all the time, I would have got the, the jump on him. But I mean, come on, he could get lucky at this yeah. side, you know, pivot. I'm not seeing the gun, our rules of engagement. It's not weapons free. They got to have a gun on us, deadly yeah. force threat on me or a partner before I can engage. So dealing with all of that, there was a light bulb moment. And after I made those notifications for my two chiefs, um, I spent about 72 hours not sleeping much of what had to happen next. Wow. That direct and that, that aggressive. Yeah. So the the frequency of this, I'm assuming at this point yeah. is just becoming up. It's it's hitting a pinnacle moment. Like you're you're, like it, you can't. You've seen all the patterns and everything, and it's happening. It's happening. You walk up to the top of the hill, and you're like, "Hey, man, Chiefs, both Chiefs, this is what's going down. We this has to be changed." It it was. That's exactly it, Mike. We were at the point where every mission it was a potential gunfight. Mm -hmm. And now I've seen Phoebe, you know, in action, actually not just training, because we trained around her a lot on bites, how to handle the dog, how to, you know, handle her if Brian's not, if he's, heaven forbid, incapacitated or dealing with something different. Um, but that day when it was so personal, and after all the stories I had heard he had encountered up in Shasta County in the northern where, where he was originally from, um, I just knew something had to change. And um, we had, you know, there was a transition 
Nancy was retiring within months from a great career. I mean, she was the driving force of progression on so many programs in our agency. And Mike was the next chief who actually stayed on. Oh, He was set to retire, but he was such a good candidate to be chief with 35 years of experience and highly respected. And, you know, he had, he had a a career similar to Nance. He had done everything, ran our academy, developed our academy, co-developed our academy. Um, And when he came on board, I thought this is the time to breach it. You know, let, you know, we can at least try. Yeah. If he'll take a meeting with me and with Nate Arnold, or, uh, my fellow captain over the Central Enforcement District, and and you know let us propose something. Yeah. And you know I wasn't went overwhelm him when he's just getting his feet wet of you know running the agency out of the headquarters in Sacramento. That's a big task. But we we had a meeting um, in the fall after grow season 2012, and that mission only happened a couple months beforehand. And he, you know, we, it's fresh on his mind. Oh, it's fresh on his mind. Mm-hmm. You know, he's getting all the updates, Nancy's getting all the updates. And it was one of those things where he said, what do you guys propose? And we had those ENF 65 forms that Nate put up that showed the documentation we had put up and the numbers were just outrage. I mean, just insightful. I mean, just crazy what the numbers were telling us, you know, they just, um, they painted a very, very dark picture and we knew we were only documenting maybe a quarter if lucky. This is what you're just coming across. This is what we're just coming across. And not, you're not. and not everybody's doing the protocol, right? Yeah. One district is doing it. Other people don't even have the form. You know, we're, we're seven different districts in the state and everyone's got their own little five to chiefs. Mm. We don't have SOPs that are universal, especially in cannabis. It's a new field. And so Nate's got the data and we know we're underrepresented by at least 75%. I've got all the, the kind of the tactical stuff worked out of what we've learned, building light running teams and QRF systems and apprehension point units and stuff with canines. And he just said, so you want a strike team dedicated? And I said, yeah, yes, sir. We'd like to, we'd like to try it. He said, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do this next summer. Gross season's over now, which would have been 2013. We're going to do it for three months. We're going to test it. You guys will document it. You'll get the people you want. You'll get the canines. You'll go anywhere in the state you need to. Um, there's going to be some patrol administrators, inter, you know, middle management, very, very upset that their best game wardens are leaving patrol to basically be on this, you know, tactical unit. But I'll handle that. You guys just get get the groundwork done. And I, I was, I mean, I left absolutely just surreal, buzzing in shock, like, now I got to catch up. I'm used to thinking five steps ahead. Now I'm like, oh man, I, you know, but this is going to happen. This is really wow. going to freaking happen. This has been 15 years in the making. This had been the first grows, you know, my partner getting shot. This had been going to our own sniper schools, teaching sniper schools with the local agencies, learning my craft, teaching the craft, going to tactical units, working with military and law enforcement, knowing that we weren't just playing special operations soldier. We were going to actually apply this to wildlife protection environmentally. Someday it was going to have to happen. Hmm. And, you know, I was like anybody after 9-11, how we were all affected my thought was, that's bullshit. I want to get in the fight somehow. And if it's domestic, because I'm already embedded in a career, I'm going to do what I can to make sure the homeland at home is protected as much as I can as a first responder, as eyes and ears, as a game warden that goes everywhere in the rural areas, because we know we have that threat here too. We know we have train, you know, we have training groups, we have all kinds of radicalized potential. So all those skills that we were developing, a handful of us, um, and guys that came from military backgrounds, like Frog that I mentioned before, were ideally suited to be on this team. We just didn't have a team. So when I got to start calling people the following winter, 
So awesome. And making those <laughs> phone calls. And I remember the phone call of Frog specifically. And we had only worked together. We had co-taught a marijuana tactical class briefly. Yeah. We didn't really know each other. Um, but we knew each other by reputation. And I said, well, bro, um, you're one of the first I got a call. You have extensive, you know, special ops experience. You were a sniper. I see a sniper team being built. There's four of us that are already trained snipers. Um, this is going to be dedicated. We're going to go all over the state. It's a pilot program and it has to succeed. <laughs> He's going to be freaking out. <laughs> and he goes, he just goes, bro, dude, I became a game warden after the teams, man. I never thought I'd be an operator again. I was going to like, you know, do the quiet wildlife thing. <laughs> he goes, but yeah, man, I'm in. I, yes. I didn't think I'd be, I didn't think I'd be pushing a, a carbine again, you know? actively every day. Yeah. I went, no, we're just, we're just getting started. So we, uh, and then I made calls to great people. Mm -hmm. The good thing about being as tenured and in the department, as long as I had and being on the committee and being an academy instructor, every, pretty much everybody that was still working. I was a dinosaur at this point. You and, affected in some way. Well, yeah. I, I knew them, yeah. you know, I'd either trained them or I'd work with them or I'd FTO them when I was still an FTO, or I knew people that I trusted that knew them. And we had just enough guys you know, what I, you know, that upper echelon and they were amazing, you know, patrol wardens. I mean, all these guys were warden. Most of them were warden of the year. They had numerous, you know, accolades and accommodations and awards for valor and things like that just because of who they are. Hmm. Um, how, great how many, how many people did you start with? And then is there formalized training prior to get everybody up to speed? Cause you guys are becoming basically the state, you know, SWAT team for being right. wardens for conducting deliberate operations. Right. We started with, we started with 10 or 11. We had a couple alternates. Which is huge. Which Cause that's a lot of people compared. Are they replacing backfilling no, the positions? And that's the rub. That, that's where the grind was. There weren't enough bodies in the state to backfill warden positions to backfill a patrol vacancy. Ooh. So in all fairness and empathizing with administrators and with squad mates, we were kind of, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, so to speak. We were doing a mission that we felt needed to get done. And selfishly, it was an important mission. But I definitely felt badly about the the, the thin green line getting thinner on patrol. Yeah. Um. So that was a problem. That was a problem. Now, those backfills have happened since and things have escalated, you know, and grown in, in numbers, fortunately, especially in cannabis enforcement. But um, getting those guys, getting the right people and getting to test it really made the difference, Mike. We hit the ground running. Um, we had the military. <clears throat> we had Team Hawk out of uh, Moffett Field and Mather, basically the counter drug group with a Black Hawk and a Payhawk dedicated for the summer. All these special forces guys as ground units for counter drug that were n between deployments yeah. for GWAT. They got titled over. Yeah. Yep. And they were basically looking for an agency that wanted to go hit it every day in August and do environmental cleanup and reclamation with the, the big pavehawk that can lift five, 6,000 pounds, do anything, fly into anything hot. And Nate and I got hit with that when we were building the team. We're like, we got a lot on our plate, but the, what an opportunity. Mm. I mean, we're going to beg, borrow, and steal to find a blade for three months that we can afford to pay or contract out or borrow from other agencies. And now we got you know, the military's finest in America. So that was Operation Pristine, coined, and we just went, went crazy. Every day in August, we just went crazy. The numbers were crazy. Military worked with us. We made it all about the environment. We did press releases. We did VIP Blackhawk flights, getting them into the Silicon Valley on a grow. We, you know, raided and babysat for a day so they could go in and actually see the plants, see the infrastructure, see the traps. 
And it was great. And see the damage. That and it was and doing. see the damage, exactly. More than anything, they saw the damage. And so six weeks into a three-month pilot program, Nate and I are driving up to the mountains where our chiefs are having their quarterly meeting. It's my head honcho and all his deputy chiefs called assistant chiefs. And we're like, we're out of money. <laughs> we're out of operating time. I mean, we need some overtime. We need some supply money. We're out of blade time. I mean, we had a month with the military and then their bird went away. And now we're just, you know, still... We, we want to be successful and we're going to give everything in that 90 days. We got to that meeting and we're expecting to justify more money. And they're like, don't even go there. We've spent two hours having this discussion before you guys got here. We want this full time. We're like, what? <laughs> Starting January 1 of next year, there will be a full-time tactical unit. You guys will have to test for your position. You got to come up with a testing protocol. What? Whoever's in it is leaving patrol. They're not doing any more patrol. They're working for headquarters under special operations umbrella statewide. This is how it's structured the way you guys have built it. And I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. So wow. Nate and I looked at each other and like, I mean, you know, kind of be careful what you wish for. There was a lot of work to do in the fall when the season was over, but work we gladly did. The interview structure, you know, the tactical scenarios we put the guys through. So you had um, a I love the origins of special operations unit like Delta Force where yeah. it's, you know, they, the Charlie Beckwith guys, they had to put, Beckwith put himself through SAS selection, but he put his guys, they yeah. basically put themselves through uh, their own selection in West Virginia. But it's it's just fascinating because you're a plank holder and you're like the, the original. Yeah. So you're designing everything from the ground up. So how did you go through that process of figuring out what was the best means in order to evaluate and assess your guys. Well, fortunately for us, we knew we had most of the right people. I mean, some people, some of the guys on the team did a great job, but it was just too much. It was too much strain on family. You know, mm -hmm. it was arduous what, for multitude of reasons. Yeah. I think we lost one, just one from the pilot program that didn't stick through to the full-time testing. Mm -hmm. And then because it was so successful, we had a lot of guys that really were skilled to do it but they wanted to kind of see what the pilot program would do. And they didn't get initially selected because I could pick only so many people, mm. you know, and there were a lot of great people. And, you know, honestly, there were those things where he'd be a great candidate, but I just haven't worked enough with him. And, you know, I, I haven't seen enough of this or, you know, between all of us making those selections um, for the pilot program, but everybody could come back and test. Mm. And then we had a ranking score, you know, a very, very stringent selection and ranking on an interview on a PT scenario involving a growth scenario and how you handle it and a mock-up. Um, and then we knew we, we knew all these guys could shoot. We knew they were all great at defensive tactics. I mean, they're all really good at that stuff. And we're going to get into that. That's a given. Yeah. But we needed to get that core, you know, you're, you're thinking on, a, on an arduous op when you're by yourself. You're, you're talking to a, an evaluator as you're working through a growth site and articulating exactly how you would logistically go through operational planning, how you'd implement it, how you'd follow up, what your contingencies would be. So we want to see that you can think as a team leader, as a one-man guy, about what you're doing for the whole team. Because... And you guys, and I really like how you and Mike Ritland talked about this, the individual rock star operator, but having the right complement mentally yeah. and emotionally to be all about the team, mm. kind of the Bill Belichick style in the, you yeah. know, in the NFL, that I have a lot of rock stars, but we're not going to make anybody a rock star. Yeah. We are a team, yeah. team first. And I had great guys, super blessed. Um, and when I got everybody selected, we had a great first year in 2014. I did have two guys on the team though, amazing operators, both canine guys, or one was a canine, one was about to be a canine guy. And 
it was becoming individualistic. There was some divisiveness. It was, you know, yeah. there was kind of a, a, a separation within the team and there was pushback and it just wasn't working out. And we had to let two guys go from the team. And that was hard. Yeah. That was the first time I ever let anybody go from anything I'd ever worked on, you know, and um, that was the first time in the agency that had ever happened. And this was the type of team where it wasn't a discipline thing. It was, you know, admin, it was, it was you're on or you're off. If you need to leave to go back to patrol, you can go back to your patrol spot. We left those open mm. because we knew the demands that MET would require. And the same token, we don't have to go through a disciplinary process if it's not working out for you on the team, yeah. for the whole of the agency. We're just, you're yeah. not going to be disciplined. It's a volunteer thing. You're yeah. volunteering. You're yeah. just going to go back to patrol. But obviously they wanted to stay on the team. They just, you know, it was one of those things that had to go the way they wanted it to go. And it just wasn't good for the team. Yeah. Great operators. And they went to other team and they did a great job. But once we got through that hurdle, um, all of those same people are still on the team. I mean, and I had it for six years. Wow. And Nate and I, you know, we figured knowing special operations backgrounds personally and, and with military guys like you that, you know, two, three years running at that pace, probably not going to stay on the team when they can go to a patrol assignment, but we have, everyone stayed, you know, wow. and the, the people that have left have promoted yeah. or retired like me. Um, and we brought in a couple of new guys. Actually, we've got four new MET members in six years to fill all the positions, which it's a real testament to the guys we got. We got so lucky, man. Yeah. Um, these guys work their asses off. You know, they work for each other. They're all about the team. Um, you know, and I honestly have, I, I know the best of the best, just like guys you worked with. They're, they're a very rare breed, but to be as loyal as they are and as selfless as they are um, and as humble, you yeah. know, was just really treat and inspiring to me too, yeah. you know, and, and just, just kept me going. So right up until the end, it, that was the hard part to leave. You talk about the transition. Um, I'm around a lot of good people like yourself with that background, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of honor, a lot of love and respect. Um, but in day-to-day businesses, you know, in the world of social media and product and training, we don't just work with, you know, those team members that yeah. are in our circle. And I miss those guys. Well, I always will. Yeah. I think it's really unique that you got to operate, standing up that team and then operating with them for such an extended period of time. Yeah, it was awesome. The, the institutional continuity that you develop, um, you, you can't replace that. And then the fact yeah. that you're you're in sync, you're retaining the same talent, and then you're continuing to learn lessons as you go. How does the operational tempo start to evolve itself? Are you guys doing your first successful missions? Yeah. And then what is the specific mission now? Are you running unilaterally as a, uh, as a team, not depending on sheriff's de- departments and everything yes. else? Yep. You're just doing it yourself. That's it. Exactly. Now, now what we're doing is we're going out with the right guys, the right support, the right toys and tools, mm. um, without boundaries. And we're really kind of doing it our way. And our, our plan was Every guy is in a different part of the state that's on the team. And every guy from an operator level outside of supervision um, is responsible for however many counties to where all 50 plus counties of California are covered. So they're generating work. They're talking to Forest Service, LEO, allies, BLM, park rangers, sheriff's deputies, DEA, whoever. And we're not just doing our own missions. We might jump in with Stanislaus County and co-lead it, but it's going to be our whole unit or part of our unit lending an element. We made kind of an, an informal rule that we would work primarily and eventually only with agencies that would, you know, go for adequate apprehension effort or let us do that. If they contained a perimeter, let us go in and be the hunters, 
because yeah. we we're good at it. We got some great dogs. They develop for years to get there. Everyone hunts hard, you know, stalking, field craft, camouflage, noise discipline, trail movement. That's kind of one of our fortes. We spent a lot of years getting there, um, but they needed to reclimate. We needed it. If we're going to work with other agencies, we said, guys, you got to meet us halfway. We'll be out there until we're dead on our feet. Ooh, I like that. But you got to do the cleanup. And I if like you, that. But if you talk to other SWAT teams, they Most want to, of them don't. Yeah, they don't want to do it. They're like, yeah. dude, we're not trash collectors. That's beneath us. I said, well, do you like the environment? Do you fish? Yeah, a little bit. Do you hike a trail with your kids? Yeah. yeah. Well, dude, I mean, think of what you're paying forward. You just got this guy. You just got to deploy your SWAT team yeah. way into the backcountry. Go hands-on. Catch the most violent domestic criminal if not one of the most violent domestic yeah. criminal you ever have. And then you get to go restore Creek and yeah, it's kind of dirty. It's the dirty part of the job, but just think how much good you did that. You can tell your kids, your grandkids or whoever. I hate and, that you have to sell it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, well, we do, you know? And I mean, I, it's so funny because oh, uh, like Marcos and my other, you know, and, 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 uh, and Shang now who's the new Lieutenant and replaced me as the Lieutenant of the team, a great guy, one of our snipers. And uh, you know, and, and they're constantly going, yeah, this, this, t- this team doesn't really want to do the cleanup, but at least we can get the raid done. Then we can come back in later. And I'm just like, you know, I'm kind of the hard ass. I'm like, that's bullshit. You yeah. Know? We're not going to play, but of course we're going to play. Yeah. We got to get the job done and, and we're going to always keep friends. And, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, that there's a little bit of hazing going on there, a little bit of guilt, you know, yeah. tripping. And, but eventually if you're out there and that team's just standing by on perimeter and they've done their thing, that SWAT unit, and now you've gone in and had a dog bite and you've been Western, you've been, you know, running an MBG since 3am. They're and, pumped up. And then we're, we're cleaning up and they're standing there. It's like, yeah, <laughs> my guys will say, this thing ain't going to clean itself up. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, ah, oh, man, man. Okay. I'm here or, anyway. I'm, I'm here. I can't do this. I, uh, I look lazy. And they've been, they've been oh. working there in all fairness. We're all tired. They've yeah. worked their ass off. They don't have to do that. That's our, it's a conservation agency's mandate. I get that, but, yeah, but, but, uh, but, but we're getting them in. We're getting them in. I, I let this whole reclamation thing is blowing my mind. Cause I, I think it's to me, you know, when you, when I always told my assaulters or my, my, uh, my special operations guys that when we hit the target, and we're, you know, we're objective secure in a minute. Yeah. yeah. That's not when it's over. That's not right. when your helmet comes off and you're done because we still have SSE. We still have to do sensitive site exploitation. Right. We have to do biometrics. We have to work the uh, tactical interrogations. Yeah. And it's a cycle because all the stuff that we uh, complete or pull off this objective lends itself back to more information, intelligence, operations, et cetera. And when I think of this reclamation, it's like a good way to put it to rest, it you know, because you, you got, you got shitheads on the objective, they're destroying the environment, right. and then you go over there, you wrap them up, and then you have the opportunity to restore the environment back to its original place, the right place for conservation in mind. And I don't know, that, that, that cycle seems very satisfying to me when I, when I think about you guys as mission tenant, you know? It absolutely, and that's a good way to say it. I've never looked at it. You know, you've gone full circle, you know, you kind of, you kind of put a stake in the ground. You've, you've climbed the top of the mountain, you can't go any higher. And it's, it's a great feeling, you know, and yeah. we'll go in and I'll, most missions I'll take a before, after we've chased the bad guys around, caught them, done what we've done. I'll take a before, all those evidence photos of the, of the, of the vapor trail of waste. And then I'll take an after when it's just the banks are clean, wow. all that stuff's out. That last, you know, helo net load of crap is out. Yeah. Um, it feels freaking really good. It does. It, it, it's, I've never felt more satisfied in a complete way yeah. environmentally, you know, to be part of the thin green line and, and, and do that. Um, one thing though, we talk about the budget and we talk about the lack of funds. And even with 
all this support logistically, right, with, you know, admin coming in with money, some DSEP money. MET burns through a lot of money, especially on the reclamation front. Yeah. And getting other groups like NGOs to support that and organizations like there's a, it's called CalWAF. It's a California Wildlife Officers Foundation. Mm -hmm. And these are all conservationists, you know, and, and like Nancy, our ex, our retired chief. Um, is on the board and they've come together. They've supplied, brought in a lot of their own money and, you know, basically funded from outside sources oh. to be that buffer to get us money for a new canine or if a canine's injured or canine mm. equipment, you know, or give us operational funds. Um, yeah. They were instrumental when I didn't have a budget before we didn't have all uh, more budget coming in, buying our first MVG sets, um, especially night vision for my sniper rifles. Yeah. You know, I, I we had to have MVG capability and starlight engagement for our quals and for most of our sniper deployments were at night, getting in and out or covering at night. So that was new, you know, yeah. um, that was big for us. And they, they allowed that thing. So, you know, big shout out to those guys and organizations like them. Oh, I, um, I want to get involved in that. I, we do, we do nonprofit work. We, I mean, we donated almost $50,000 last year to nonprofits. Wow. And I, 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 I'd love to be involved in that and raising money to support that. Cause I think that's, you know, I, with the CBD thing, the Wildlands Hemp Company that we own and uh, giving back, I think that'd be a good revenue. That would be a good stream to support Brother, you guys and doing it. That would be huge. And then, and then even just raising awareness because it's yeah. so important. But you know, when I think about uh, being being somebody who wants to give back, it's like what what way can you optimize that and giving back the most? And I think this whole thing that you're talking about and the reclamation and the repairing of our wildlands, it just, that's the way to do it. Cause you guys it do it, yeah. you deal with it direct. Yeah. It's not like it's passive. You know, you're not, we're not, you're not paying somebody to, to uh, somehow where you don't find out, deal with the environment and repair the environment. This is directly affecting the environment. And you know, it just, when I think about just raising yeah. money, like, Hey guys, we're going to raise money to provide, this specific type of equipment for the reclamation of these lands and seeing that, oh man, that, that'd be satisfying. That's it's awesome. huge. No, yeah. man. And bless oh, you for man. doing that. You know, I mean, Calwaf is a great place to start where it's all started in California, where the majority of it happens with the cartel. And then the, the group I'm a part of on the board crop, yeah. which is a national group, you know, they're, they're going to hit not only California on public lands, but they're going to also hit the other States Ooh. too. So it's kind of like, I'm kind of torn, you know, yeah. knowing how, heavy the magnitude of the problem is in california really that's where a lot of funding needs to go because that's where the reclamation is going to have the biggest dent right now but we can't forget about the lesser states that are having it to a lesser extent you know so yeah. it's kind of like i'm and now i'm part of crop and of course i you know still support and keep in touch with and uh, promote with reach now thanks to guys like you yeah. and, and and listening and thank you so much for this this is helping Calwaf say yeah we're involved we're out there guys look at i mean we have we have money and a handful of people on the board, but we don't have a big reach. Yeah. We don't have a big Instagram following, things like that, nor does crop. So, you know, I look at groups like that that aren't on the radar, but guys like you and me as patriots yeah. with our backgrounds trying to get back. And we're and we're wilderness guys. It's, it's kind of cool. And so yeah. a little bit goes a long way, but those are those are good points. Yeah, yeah we'll figure out the way, the path, because I think there's a, a, a we gotta figure out a, a channel to be able to put this out and get people more involved. Get people in our community kind of involved. Yeah. Uh, I like your plan. Yeah. Wait, so great. talk to me about the national version of this because is this just california specific and who if anybody has fallen suit in, in in other states so what's happening right now is 
Unfortunately, it's just California that's got what? Yeah, just has this team on the game warden front. And that's game wardens being special operators of this level. You just don't see that. I mean, that, but that's surprising. No other states are yeah. like, is well, that because of it's for, just so for, new? It, it's not, I, I need to qualify that. It's not, um, there's no other states doing it specifically for this mission. Yeah. But Florida has SOG units, yeah. special operation groups that are everything from, you know, waterborne safety and, you know, um, crisis hurricane response, uh, fugitive tracking. Um, they could very easily jump into a mission like this in a day if they had more of that problem. Texas has specialized units. California, Texas, and Florida, generally speaking, are the more progressive, better funded, more diverse um, conservation agencies because one, they have the problem. Mm-hmm. And two, they have resources to get to something like we built. But other little states that don't have a lot of wardens but have a lot of capable guys that want to do the job, they just don't have the infrastructure yet or the support, not only personnel-wise but uh, logistically and financially. And that's where all this outreach and education I'm doing, like through this this uh, talk we're having today, is bringing some attention to that and that mm. it, they need help there too. So these other states have kind of, is it is it hodgepodge put together stuff or is yeah. it organized and called special operations something else? Is it like a different version of you guys? Because I feel like you guys set the standard and right. like other states could use that lesson learned and model as an example of how to stand up their own versions of this. Yeah, that's certainly what we're trying to lend out there is whatever we've learned, we want to share, mm-hmm. obviously. And like, you know, we focus on, you know, the cartel tainted cannabis issue, but we're a team to handle anything. You know, it'd be fugitive recovery, high risk entry warrant support, sniper overwatch. Hazmat. Hazmat. Yeah. We, we've been roped into doing a lot of stuff, yeah. you know, outside of just that. But that's the mission that keeps you hot, keeps you sharp. Because we do so many of them every year. Florida does has amazing SOG units that do a little bit different. They don't target that because they don't have that problem as much that we do with, with tainted cannabis cartel grows, but, um, you know, disaster response after Uh. hurricane Katrina, after nine 11, all of those things, Texas being so close to the border, you know, having cartel issues there with their specialized teams. And then certainly we, I keep in touch with all those guys. We share information. I'm looking to do some stuff with Florida, some co-training development or get them back allied with, you know, the Met team back in California, the guys that are running it behind me now, and also doing some stuff in Texas, just to kind of, it's amazing how much we have in common yeah. that we're not quite prepared for, but we could learn that little tidbit, that little caveat that one team brings to the other that just makes us safer and more efficient and more effective in any state. Um, is there a conference or something that you guys go to? Like there, a national conference? There is. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. There's several. Um, there's an International Crime Stoppers um, conference that I spoke at um, right literally a couple days before my time on mic drop with our mutual friend, Mike Ritland. Um, and that was all chiefs. It was like 45 chiefs, including my chief, David Bess, you know, that's now the chief behind Mike, um, that was supporting and helping develop the cannabis program. That's really blossomed since, you know, since I retired Yeah, and telling all those guys, this story and showing them a PowerPoint and telling them the stories and the growing pains of how Met was formed and what's out there. I've never seen chief so fired up. I mean, they stood up. It was a standing ovation. They were like high-fiving each other. This is what we need to be about. That's that's legitimate game warden work, man. That's bigger, more, more significant. It's hitting us harder environmentally. And we're dealing with it on a lesser scale. Can you come help us? So yeah, I'm getting pulled out to those states, speaking to them, showing them our 
protocol, if you will, what to look for if they can build a team. And at least if they can't build a team, getting them some resources and contacts of where to reach out to try to get something going. Mm -hmm. Um, The NOWEA, the National um, Wildlife Officers Annual Convention that moves around state by state, um, I'm going to speak at that again this year and have a whole long embedded, more specific law enforcement class. Uh, several hours on officer-involved shooting debriefs, mm-hmm. you know, uh, PTSD, protocol, logistics, mental preparation, team selection, all those things we kind of learned the hard way, you know, over that 10, 15-year period. Yeah. So I'm doing everything I can nationally. And that's what's beautiful about phase two, Mike, is um, definitely showing what we built in California with some pride. Um, very honored that I was, and, and so blessed to be mm-hmm. part of that with yes. that agency. Um, but looking at it, you know, more at a 30,000 foot view now on a macro level versus just thinking about what I need, you know, to do within my home state. Um, and it's amazing when people start communicating, Mm -hmm. um, how much more pervasive this problem is than we think. So, um, yeah, it's, it's not slowing down and I'm glad I'll, I'll be overwhelmed and and happy being overwhelmed on the, uh, teaching and speaking and and tactical training front for a long time, I hope. Yeah. I, I think it's so important that how you lay that out because you need consultants from an outside perspective to come in using their experiences, acting as subject matter experts, but coming from a perspective that's not you know, bureaucratically affiliated or politically affiliated or institutionally affiliated and giving the ground truth and Correct. saying, Hey, yeah. you know, here's the, here's the data. Here's the experiences. Uh, here's what we're running into. Yep. And here are ways that we exactly. fix the problem. And I think that's so important, man. I, and I, it's really cool to see you do it from this perspective because you're an operational guy. You right. know I mean? You're not, you're not like a, a suit who somehow figured out a way and you're coming back trying to tell the operational guys how to stand up. Yeah. You're an ops guy who came into a position where you're in now acting as a consultant from a, you know, 30,000 feet perspective and you're giving new insight. Um, and I think all the, um, you know, the entire United States and all the fish and game, fish and wildlife, whatever you want to call it. Uh, need to be tied into this because that's how you adapt and evolve. I Absolutely. Mean, that's the only way that you're going to grow, right? No, and that's perfectly said. And now, and and that's really how we're going to affect it nationally, right? We're not going to affect it being in our little fiefdoms of our states and just kind of developing our own thing in one state and not really, you know, letting the cat out of the bag. And, you know, we, we hear about these special operation stories of one team from one branch and another team from another branch not communicating on the same op. Yeah. You know, I've heard it a hundred times, yeah. you know, from brothers like you and, yep. um, we don't want to do that. We never wanted to do that. And that's one of the things that I like about how we were built. I already had kind of an outreach presence anyway, going into this thing as an operational guy. So knowing that we were going to tell the story as much as we were going to live the story mm. was just as important, you yeah. know, and, 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 and maybe sometimes even more important because had we not done that, these other States wouldn't be reaching out they'd be floundering with the issue and probably more ill-equipped from a resource standpoint than we were in the beginning. And we got an officer almost killed, Mm. you know, I mean that I, we didn't have that happen. Maybe that's phrased wrong, but that was a, that was a very bad contingency that happened from our involvement in an early day by the good graces. He survived and has become an amazing game warden, now a Lieutenant, you know, but I don't want to see that happen to any other group. You know, and I want to do, be part of preventing that for any other agency domestically, whether they're in the thin green line of conservation officers or not from ever, you know, having that happen. And I'm having a lot of narcotics teams outside of conservation agencies 
reaching out to do presentations and do some training. And that's cool because they're going to see the environmental component. Yeah. There, there's a lot more, you know, conservation kind of loving wildlife, wanting to protect all those resources outside of the game warden contingency that I'm finding nationally and in our military. Most of us, you guys in special forces in, in all branches come from that outdoor background. Oh yeah. Love your fishing, yeah. love your hunting, love your open spaces, right? The yeah. woods are our church, not mine. They're our church. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, we, we, we got a lot we can do with that message, you know, and, and benefit the country, not just the state. Yeah. I, I just want to get more involved in that when you, it's, I'm just, I, I feel deeply, um, compassionate and passionate about somehow trying to be involved in something like that. It reminds me of the human trafficking problem, right? Right. Where it's just, you're dealing with human lives, the most innocent um, parts of our society that we need to protect. And you just, as a survival primal instinct, want to do something about it. It's yeah. the same thing I think about when I think about conservation of land yes. and, yes. and our, and our yeah. natural habitats. And, uh, you know, what you've done with a book and how you're doing it, man, uh, many people could not do the way you're doing it mm. so eloquently because you have to maintain a balance, right? You have to be yeah. very careful, but telling the truth and, and, and the truth as it sits tells the story. You don't even have right. to do any deviation politically or anything. Just the truth is enough for people to, to get more vested and involved. Yeah. Uh, I love it, man. How, how do people find all the things that you guys are doing and what's, what's the future look like next? Um, well, first of all, thank you for that compliment. That that's a huge honor coming from you. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very blessed to do what I do and I, I had an amazing career, a real blessed career, a lot of close calls, but I wouldn't have changed any of it for the world, you know, to get to this point, never saw it coming, you know, um, to get a hold of me, I'm on Instagram like everybody else. I'm just John Norris, J-O-H-N-N-O-R-E-S, one word. Um, direct message me if you have questions about the issue, you want training, you want a speaking presentation or, or to know more about this because I'm all over the country doing that. Um, my email or my website, basically johnnorris.com, gets you to my email if, if you want anything further. Um, like you guys, I, I still uh, teach and mentor on carbine, pistol, precision rifle, but to a very, very small group when I have time. And I limit it to very few students and they're, they're vetted civilians typically, some military, some law enforcement, mm -hmm. mostly in Montana now. I love to just get back on the gun and train mm -hmm. and teach. And now I'm, I'm speaking more than I'm physically teaching, you know, and yeah, yeah. I don't want to lose that. It's a weird transition, it. It's right? a weird transition, but again, it's, it's getting to more people. Yeah, but it's selfish, necessary. Yeah. Selfishly, I just, I love teaching sniper schools with, with my, you know, with, with that sheriff's military crew in California and, and some of that. But yeah, just get, reach me on Instagram. Um, reach me up on the website if you, if you want anything like this. I do offer, people really want signed copies, personalized copies of the book. Yeah, thank they you for buying it, by the way. Oh, this, absolutely, man. No, thank, awesome. thank you for, for diving into it. And the way we go about doing that, if I'm not going to be in your state for a while, just direct message me. Um, I will ship them as long as someone covers minimal shipping. I'll personalize both books, get them out. We do a PayPal thing, you know, and, and, and we'll make that happen. Um, got a signature knife coming out here in a, actually in a couple of weeks. Um, little folder by V knives, Mike Bellacamp of V knives collaborated really cool. with me. Yeah. It's, it's the, the thin green line trailblazer, Nice. my call sign, but it's that little folder that has every tool that any one knife never had when I was operational, Yeah. a glass breaker, an emergency webbing cutter, you know, a lanyard loop, an impact tool and a nice battle blade on it that everybody can carry. So I'm, a lot of people have 
inquired on that as I've made some announcements and that'll certainly be available. That's going to be on the site, the website? That'll be on the website and it'll be up on Instagram. Yeah. And it'll be on available through the factory as well, but I'll, I'll personalize those copies too. If anybody wants a blade and, um, yeah, get a hold of me, uh, either of those, those mediums and we'll, uh, we'll connect. Awesome, man. John, the author of Hidden War, How Special Operations Game Wardens Are Reclaiming America's Wildlands from the Drug Cartels. Thank you so much, man, for coming on the podcast. Total honor, brother. Thanks for having me. It was great. Yeah.